VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, June the 29th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's the gentleman you'll be speaking with when you give us a shout in the queue and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, not necessarily a complaint, because summer's here, and it's nice and warm. A bit sticky, but it was warm in the bunk last night, but... The summer weather looks like it's here. Heat warnings in place for many parts of the province here today. Some people absolutely love it. Others not necessarily built for it. All right, a couple of easy ones before we get going. So I guess the Connor Bedard uh, era of the NHL officially began last night when the Chicago Blackhawks drafted him first overall. Worst kept secret in the hockey world. There's a new Flander who does have a chance to get drafted. Dawson Mercer's brother, Riley, is the 24th-ranked North American goaltender, so does indeed have a shot at getting drafted this go-round, so we'll see what happens there. And last night, the New York Yankees starter, Domingo German, pitched the 24th perfect game in Major League history. There hasn't been one since uh, August the 15th of 2012. German? He's never even pitched a complete game before, let alone 27 up, 27 down. Of course, you need some pretty stellar defense behind you, and he got some of that last night. But it's the fifth, well, pardon me, he's the fourth Yankee to pitch a perfect game. Uh, David Wells, back in 98, who also pitched for the Jays. David Cohn in 99, who also pitched for the Jays. And Don Larson in 1956. Larson's is probably the most famous because it was in Game 5 of the 1956 World Series against the Brooklyn Dodgers. So... 24th game, perfect game in Major League history. Pretty cool stuff. Got 9Ks out of 27 batters. He had a 10-game suspension a years ago, actually when he was pitching against the Jays. He had some sort of sticky substance and consequently got ejected from the game and a 10-game suspension, but there you go. Pretty cool, perfect game. I saw a news story yesterday, and you know, I should never read the comments section because it is really ludicrous for the most part. And this was about a poll, a really small sample size poll, about what the favorite sport is for Canadian sports fans. So people obviously don't read the stories, generally speaking. And, the, you know, the headline was something like, is, Canada's still, is hockey still Canadian's favorite sport? And, of course, in the polling, it absolutely is, even though the headline makes you think that it's absolutely not. So uh, somewhere around a third of Canadians follow hockey most closely for any, of any sport uh, throughout the year. It's changing somewhat, but no other sport cracked double digits inside of it. So let's see here. Nearly 8% follow football or soccer, 7% follow baseball, 6% follow basketball, and then others like tennis, car racing, cricket, curling all have very small percentages. Hockey's most popular in Alberta. Not really surprised. Close behind is the Quebecers. And Atlantic Canadians, almost 38%, even though there's no NHL team in the eastern part of the country. So anyway, yes, hockey's still the favorite sport as per this very small poll. Okay. Yesterday we were talking about the Competition Bureau and some recommendations they've made when they examine the world of food sales. And we do, we do know the five big giants add up about three-quarters of every bit of food sold in the country, and the recommendations were interesting. Whether or not any level of government will act on it is another thing. But there's more news coming from the, uh, the Competition Bureau. So remember the bread price-fixing scam or scheme that happened back in uh, 2007 and 2011? So Canada Bread, they admitted on a guilty plea last week that they absolutely did defraud Canadians and the retailers because when they fixed the wholesale prices and a massive big hike in those two aforementioned years, retailers, of course, used the wholesale price to determine what the actual retail price will be. 
So, okay, it's been a seven-year investigation, and as a result, there's been a fine levied against Canada Bread, $50 million. Okay, let's have a look at the years where they uh, were, they actually pled guilty to doing what they've done. In 2007, they had uh, annual sales of $945.9 million. In 2011, over $1 billion in the years that the price fixing happened. And so $50 million sounds like peanuts for such a brutal piece of business operated by Canada Bread. Even on top of that, what I guess will make many people frustrated, if not angry, is that that $50 million goes straight to the federal government, into the federal government coffers. You know, it might be a good idea, as the government watches Canadians struggle, especially surrounding the cost of food, and obviously we eat a lot of bread in this country, maybe, just maybe, as opposed to setting up the bureaucracy that would be to divvy up $50 million to every adult Canadian who purchased some of this overpriced bread, maybe just put it in the hands of food banks. Certainly they could use it, but the $50 million goes right to the government. That's the highest fine ever levied by the Competition Bureau. Uh, there was a case last year where Currig Canada, they agreed to pay a $3 million penalty and donate $800,000 to an environmental uh, charity because they made the misleading claims stating that their pods, their single-use pods, were recyclable. It turns out they're not. The difference there is that Currig was involved in a civil case. And so the agency was able to negotiate some sort of settlement as opposed to price fixing, which is a criminal offense. And this criminal offense comes with a price tag of $50 million and only $50 million from Canada Bread. All right, so the implications of July 1st, of course, Memorial Day here in the province and Canada Day celebrations for some who choose to participate. But we also know, and this is not news to you, but still worthy of conversation. So here comes the federal carbon tax. The massive implication will be on home heating fuels. So you're going to see 17 cents in addition to what you're already paying. And there's some 40,000 homes that do indeed heat their home with home heating fuels. For gasoline and diesel, we go from 11 cents to 14 cents. It does come with a quarterly rebate, which is not going to cover the entirety of the cost for most, but for some. In addition to the carbon tax implication, and the Atlantic Canadian provinces through their premiers, finance ministers and otherwise, have said, we need a pause because we do have a unique situation in Atlantic Canada with very few refinery options. And then it's the bloody clean fuel regulations. The massive problem here is that we don't even know what it means. It seems to me that if the federal government can't in detailed fashion articulate exactly what the implication of a clean fuel regulation will be, then we shouldn't have it imposed upon us. I mean, it just seems to be absurd to have something coming down the pike with all of the unknowns associated with it. So it's fair enough for Minister Parsons or Minister Cody or Premier Fury or anyone to be talking about this issue, and they've reiterated their stance. But please, even for our federal members of Parliament, if you can't tell us exactly what this means, how can you possibly be onside with it? It's absolutely bizarre. So you can listen to the Parliamentary Budget Office, which says by uh, 2030 we're going to see an additional 17 cents a litre on gas, 16 cents a litre on diesel. be nice if someone could confirm that be, uh, beyond the PBO, but here it comes. Then there's the issue of what it's going to be, not just out of your pocket for purchase of fuels. Marine Atlantic, they burn somewhere in the neighborhood of 33 million litres of marine diesel each year. So there's no chance they're going to shoulder that as additional cost because we already have a problem with Marine Atlantic and their cost recovery model, which simply does not work. I don't hear any of the members of Parliament talking about this, even though it was a hot-button topic for years, and so it should be. So that additional cost, me and you are going to pay it. We just most simply are. The province, remember when the full fuel surcharge was being pledged, and they've backpedaled on that particular thing. The province was talking about constitutional challenges, 
about the structure of Marine Atlantic and what it means for people here in the province and those wanting to visit the province via the ferry service. So those two things are coming. And here I keep coming with the good news. Also on the 1st of July, Newfoundland and Labrador's annual rate adjustment happens. They go to the PUB. They did it back in April. This happens every year. And so what we're going to see is as of the 1st of July, an increase for 3.4% uh, and 6.7% for residential customers and between 7 and 8.4% for commercial customers. So sorry to have to bring all of that kind of money talk to you, but there we go. All right. We do, uh, we talk about food, we talk about housing, we talk about everything. We can talk about whatever you want. But, you know, when you hear people tell their personal stories of homelessness, you know, the stories that I heard on the uh, driving to work this morning, people living in trailers for a couple of years and what it means for them psychologically, it's just really extraordinary issue that we have gone so far down this road. And there's been some action taken, but we're not keeping up with the pace with which homelessness is growing. I think we're uh, talking to Doug Pawson th this morning, are we, David, from End Homelessness St. John's? I, th I think we are, anyway. His report, uh, his group's report, says that homelessness in the city of St. John's alone has gone up by 63% in the last year. So we had a problem prior to last year. Vacancy rate went from 7% in 2019 to around 3%. So on every angle, whether it be the affordability of getting into a home via mortgage and or the rental costs or even the opportunity to even view a rental unit, but imagine those stories of people living in their trailers for years on end. All right. A couple of quick fishery notes before we go on. We are continuing to try to get confirmation from DFO, and maybe the union can help us out here. There was a moratorium on the commercial cod fishery in the Gulf last year. When they made the announcements regarding commercial cod fishery this year, no mention as to whether or not that moratorium continues in the Gulf. We're trying to find out. Ernest Decker called yesterday on it, and I'm trying to get your answer for you, Ernest. Now we also know that the moratorium on bait fishing, mackerel, will be extended through this year for Atlantic mackerel and all the commer commercial bait fishing, Atlantic Canada and Quebec for 2023. There is an exemption for the bluefin tuna feet for mackerel. This comes as an enormous problem for lobster harvesters because mackerel is the prime go-to bait. Now, they apparently are looking at bait alternatives, but that's the reality of it today, is now that there's a commercial uh, moratorium on mackerel again this year, what that's going to mean for a billion-dollar lobster industry throughout Atlantic Canada and Quebec. But the problem here is, is that we know it's a shared stock with the United States of America. They continued with the mackerel fishery last year. I don't know which country is on the right track here. We do know that there's always going to be some concerns when one species or another is in the critical zone. But the Americans are proceeding with their commercial fishery this year. You know, the federal government here has lobbied the Americans to have you know, joint management to come up with some reasonable approach in the effort to either have a commercial fishery or what it's going to take to rebuild, but they're moving ahead. So the equivalent of DFO in the United States is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They're proceeding with the total allowable catch of 3,639 metric tons. It is a decrease of some 27% from 2022, but in the shared stock that swims between their waters and our waters, the moratorium continues this year for Atlantic Canada, Quebec, and the Americans are moving ahead like they did last year, albeit with that mentioned decrease of some 27%. All right, what's this scribble here? I can't even read my own writing. Oh, the same group that are interested in the conversations around the fixed link all sent emails overnight last night. I don't know if this is a concerted effort, <coughs> pardon me, but they wanted me to throw it back out there, and we can do exactly that. You just heard it, and we can take it on. I don't know where the story ends regarding 
the five lives lost in the Titan submersible. But now that the recovery effort, and we've seen the pictures in the Port of St. John's where they've been offloading parts of the wreckage. Look, I have absolutely nowhere near an expert in this realm, but when we were told that it was indeed an implosion, or they thought at least that it was an implosion that caused the vessel to come apart and consequently all five lives to be lost, some of the parts coming off are really quite substantial. Now, I know some of the bigger parts are maybe titanium as opposed to carbon, which was the stress point where we think that the Titan was lost. But even in that world, the pieces still look pretty big. I don't know if we're ever going to find out exactly what happened here. But on top of that, now it's reported that there's possible human remains have been found. I, I would imagine many people listening to the program this morning looked at some of the animation about what an implosion would look like at some six to 9,000 uh, PSI. So the word being thrown around all the time was everything disintegrated. So the fact that they were able to find some human remains in these big pieces, I don't know. But it's making the story beyond the tragedy and the sadness associated with five people lost is now, I think, growing confusion as to even understanding what happened. And will we ever know in full? Not really quite sure, but there you go. All right. This one, just for information purposes, if indeed you are a Canadian or a family of Canadians who are now eligible for the Canada Dental Benefit, the last day to apply for the benefit, the first period, which ends tomorrow. So you have to have your application in. You can do it by phone with CRA. You can do it on your MyGov account or the CRA My account. So here you go. Uh, yeah, you have to have the application in by tomorrow. The next benefit, of course, starts on the 1st of July. This uh, period is from October the 1st of 2022 to June the 30th of 2023. And so you had to keep your uh, receipts for any dental work done. There is some confusion about how long it's going to take to uh, expect your payment for the recipients of the Canada Dental Benefit. But tomorrow is the deadline. If you have any receipts in hand for the period of October the 1st of 2022 to tomorrow, the 30th of June of 2023. I see the story that's always going to happen. We talk about safety on the roads, whether it be with speed calming measures and maybe more police presence or speed cameras or whatever the case may be. Five vehicles seized in Central uh, just a couple of days ago by the RCMP. Two people, no license. Two others were found with alcohol in their system. Another crazy uh, speedy driver going 152 in an 80 kilometer hour zone. So, yeah, there you go. And for those folks in Marystown, Mayor Keating is pleading with people to stay off the Canning Bridge. You know, apparently they put up removable barriers, wooden barriers, and that's from the Department of Transportation provincially. People just move them aside, and the mayor is worried that some morning he's going to be asked for comment about a tragedy if indeed the bridge crumbles under a vehicle. You know, it's still allowable for first responders, which I suppose is the, nece the, the necessity of it, but that's the message from Mayor Keating. And everyone would be frustrated with the Canning Bridge being closed. One question I have is, it's not like it's the Golden Gate Bridge, but apparently the time frame for replacing the bridge is going to be three or four years. I'm not really sure why it's going to take that length of time to replace that bridge, because it's not exactly massive or has a massive span. But anyway, there you go. We're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, let's try to have a great show. That means you've got to pick up the phone, get in the queue, and on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, this year we got a very clear example of the, the rift between fish harvesters and the processing sector. And, of course, different species come with different complications about what price would be afforded to the harvester and how it gets sold wherever the market would be. Snow crab has been the key focus. But for lobster... 
the harvesters will come in sometimes the processors aren't, bu aren't buying and when they do buy sometimes they can sit on them in their own tanks until the price improves consequently more profit for the processor Rick Crane out in Cox's Cove was taking matters into his own hands to control his fate a little bit more with the construction of a massive lobster holding tank that he is the owner operator of and Rick Crane joins us on line number one Good morning Rick you're on the air Good morning, Paddy. How are you? That's kind. How you doing? I'm good, boy. Good. Finished up our last season last evening, and uh, now I'm uh, finishing up a few things here in Cormac, and I'm going out for probably my biggest day yet. Uh, all the fishermen are coming in. They're bringing their own lobster in my tank. We gotta, we're all thinking the same way. I got the building, and uh, someone's coming dropping them off and leaving them. You know, just keeping them for a while. So uh, what I plan to do looks like it's working. No doubt. I don't know if I described it accurately exactly how you're doing it and why you're doing it, so I'll let, leave it up to you in your own words exactly why this was a necessary evil for you to take on, or a necessary investment, pardon me. Ten years ago, we always, you know, it's like a stock market. The lobster market is like a stock market. First of the year when lobsters are a bit scarcer, they're more expensive. Then they drop down bottom out after Mother's Day because of that boom for Mother's Day. And then they'll dwindle back up again. Um, we've seen that. Me and Dad always seen that. And it was when we didn't, you know, we wouldn't get as many lobsters now. The West Coast is doing well with lobsters now. But uh, we weren't getting. So we were trying to maximize profit. And it was just a dream. And, um, you know, and it was something that always played in my head. And I always said I was going to do it. Going to do it. And we had to land down by the water. And when he passed, uh, it was like one of them things like, I'm going to do that. That was our, that's our dream. I'm going to do it. And but it, Patty, I got her done. Good on you. I mean, and this is taking the bull by the horns kind of stuff. So you can hold about 48,000 pounds of lobster in the tank. What, how much did it cost to build? Uh, I got about 480,000, a more accurate number right now, with pumps, aeration systems. Like, there was a lot more to this. So I was told it was going to cost $80,000. So three years ago... Rick, I, I knew a guy that done it, uh, and a buyer. He said, Rick, I got $80,000 coming into this town. I said, you know what? I can do that. I can hide that away. I'll work hard enough. I'll hide that away in three years and uh, or, or two years. And, yes, hello, I had $80,000 gone. I had my groundwork done because we had to pull out the whole, you know, the whole rock and the bedrock, the uh, sea rock and stuff. We had to put in eight-inch stone. We had to have proper drainage because then you're changing everything and you're going into engineering then. And then, you know, we had to do everything by specs that was going to work. Was going to work. So, uh, right now, I got about 480000 Did I go over a bit? Yeah. Did I? Like, I didn't need... I didn't need air conditioning in it. I, d I didn't need, you know, a bathroom in it. But this is 2023, so yes, you want to use the bathroom. You want to have a controlled environment where you don't want to warm air in this building either uh, when you're trying to keep the water cold. You know, you don't want air, like warm air, warming the water up. So it wasn't necessary, but I think it was, it needed to be done. If that makes any sense, but it's uh, you know, I got four hundred eighty thousand with a little bit of wharf there. I got there for the boats to pull in. It's no, it's not the wharf's not where I want it to be, but it's it's enough to get by. I got fishermen come there in boats today. Um, what I tried to design, Patty, was the perfect experience for a fisherman. I fished this. I just finished my twenty fifth season. I'm forty years old. I've lived it all my life. I tried to do what the fisherman would want to benefit in every way and uh, I think I'm pretty close. Is it working? 
the, the response and support I have got from the fishermen is unbelievable. There's always, let's call it what this, there's always envy between any group of people, whether it's farmers, fishermen, whatever. And, you know, I've dealt with it. We've all dealt with it in every, every different, you know, group of work. But the support in this, it's crazy. All over the island, Atlantic Canada, um, even in my own area, the fishermen are coming to try to support me. Listen, how can we do this, Rick, to help you? How many times have I got a question or I got a call and say, this is great. We're going to try to help you do what, what we can to make this work. Because it is, it was a gamble. It is a gamble. But it works in everyone's favor. Processors gets more oiling. So we can sell, like, you know, we don't have to block everything, and they don't have to tell us, no, you can't buy. So there's a benefit there. Um, I even have processors call me and ask, can they rent space from me? Um, fishermen will come because they don't need to sell right away. They'll come and they'll sell for, you know. At the end of the day, if they make a quarter, I make a quarter. And we're all making money, and that's what it all come down to. How long can you keep the lobsters in the tank? Uh, I seen on the Colleen Connors, or they said uh, they said eight months. I'm not trying that. Uh, that's Russian roulette, in my opinion. Uh, I'm not. I don't have like I'm just a one man army kind of thing. Hey, like I don't have all these people watching all this stuff 24 hours around the clock. I'm gonna try to do August because from what I see is that is the gap where the seasons and you know Southwest Nova is closed, where and the other ones getting ready to close. Newfoundland, New Brunswick. PEI, we're all getting ready to close. So there's going to be, you know, less supply, more demand, especially with the warm water and stuff. So I think in, from now to August is where I'm going to maximize what I'm going to get. Um, just say, like, just for instance, in the last 10 days, the prices went up almost a dollar. So if I had 20,000 pounds, just saying I had 20,000 pounds, in the last 10 days, I made $10,000. For the fish or harvesters, play, whatever, right? for the fish harvesters that pull up to your wharf, do you charge them uh, per pound to keep their lobsters in your tank, or how does that wealth sharing work? Um, some I'll take and just distribute to a buyer for them, um, but if they're going to put lobsters in, that's going to take my space. I will charge them. Yes. Well, I need to get my investment back. How long do you think it's going to take to recover the investment? You know, based on historical decreases and increases or the fluctuation of prices. With the support I've got from the fishermen to try to make this work, less than 10 years. Good on you. Bold move, but it just makes all the sense in the yep. world, right? You control your own fate. Uh, before I let you go, Rick, any thoughts about the continued moratorium for uh, Atlantic Canada, Quebec, and the mackerel fishery? Um, well, we use mackerel. Well, a lot use mackerel for, um, for lobster. We use it for all of it, and all the all of us seasons are going to start opening up here now in uh in uh, the western Newfoundland. Um, from what I understand, I fish tuna in, in uh, PEI. They're allowed so many uh, to catch for their bait, I believe, yep. in, in PEI for tuna. Why are they allowed and we're not? I don't get that. I never, ever understood that. Why ain't we allowed to get, like, I, I heard yesterday on the radio we're allowed 20 a day, um, and maybe that's what they're allowed too. But, you know, I always thought we should always get treat it fair and uh, if there's a moratorium here it should be everywhere else if they're allowed to do it for bait to survive in their, their main fishery then so should we uh, I don't I, you know I'm not a scientist 
I don't. Uh, I I do believe a lot of science, not all. Uh, I did hear Clifford uh, Clifford Small this year and say uh, he was in Coxcombe and Pierre Polavive or whatever his name is. They uh, they told me they told all the fishermen if he gets elected, there will be 100% guaranteed a macro fishery in uh, Newfoundland when he gets elected. Again, uh, science. I I do believe science, not all of it, but. Uh, Back to if it's good enough in PEI, it's good enough in Nova Scotia, it's good enough to have here in Newfoundland. And I, that's that's pretty much all I can say here without even jumping one side of the fence to another. Yeah, I believe the there's an exemption for the blue fin tuna fleet right across Atlantic Canada. So I think it's probably a level playing field, but I'll get confirmation there. And, of course, the Americans are proceeding with their macro fishery on a shared stock. And, of course, here we are with Canada with a continued moratorium. I really appreciate the time this morning. Rick, uh, bravo on this bold initiative that you've undertaken. Seems like it's going to work out famously. Good on you. Patty, it's been an honor. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Take care of yourself. Stay in touch. All right, there we go. That's Rick Crane from Crane's Legacy out in Cox's Cove. The lobster holding tank holding 48,000 pounds. He'll get maximum price when he can get it as opposed to selling it to the processor who will do the exact same thing. All right, that was pretty good. Will I take Holly here before we go, David? What do you want to do? Yes, because Holly was in the queue late after late yesterday morning as well. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Holly. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How Hi. are you today? Oh, not too bad, thanks. How are you doing? Um, well, it could be better in our situation out here in Bird Islands. You've uh, talked to Murray a few times. Yep. I live across the road from Murray. We're all in the same situation. Um, we've had damages to our homes, our properties, our garages, uh, and it seems like we can't get any answers. Uh, we're being told uh, we are being looked at. Now, with the fall approaching upon us, you know, our storm season is coming quick, and we have no answers. We don't, we have no protection. A lot of us are satisfied even just to get some failure in our properties. Um, it don't even seem that we can get that. They say that there's no fail for our properties. They're going to give us, some people have been offered some money, to put back into their homes to fix up what damage was done, but they said there is no money for landfill. So it really doesn't make sense to fix up your home when now our properties are more compromised than ever was. So it really doesn't make any sense. Um, Just let me uh, paint the uh, picture for folks who might not know exactly what we're talking about. You okay. know, Port of Basque has a designation as being the community that was hit by po by post-tropical storm Fiona, and consequently a lot of focus has been on that community. In Burnt Islands, different set of circumstances. So there hasn't been the type of response, and money's flown to the residents there, including Murray and yourself. I believe there's some 11 homes that have been impacted by Fiona. So you don't really have the information because government is unable to tell you exactly why there's a difference between how you treat the folks in Burnt Island versus Port of Basque because they were hit by the exact same storm. Exactly. Okay. So, from information, so what we've done, we've a, a few of the families here have took it upon ourselves to try to get the ball rolling to see what's going on. We've been contacting some government officials. Uh, everybody's saying the same thing. As a process, we have to wait. Personally, myself, I have not got a phone call saying anything. I do not know anything at all. Some people have been offered some money to either 
get a contractor to fix it or if you choose to fix it yourself. So some of us, but what we're not understanding is why is our community, because we were told we're smaller, so do that make us less of people as residents that we're not getting these funds or any answers to what should happen for us? I know um, on the day of the Fiona, it was so bad down here. Even though we're smaller, we understand we're smaller, and our community was, I guess if the way we look at it is if you put it on a scale. Our community had as much damage as port bass for the size of it. The, the day of the Fiona, we live on an island. The day of the Fiona, we had to stop, wait for the water to go out to get off the causeway. We had it bad, too, just as well as Port of Bath had it bad. Everything that I've talked to any government officials or to anyone that I've spoken to, um, it seems like it's fallen back to our council. Our council is not given the push, the push to try and advocate for us. I know Brian Button was on the radio yesterday. He said it himself. He pushed and pushed to try and get things done. Um, we were told that there is no impact zone on this side of Port of Bass. So from what another thing that we're getting is until there's an impact zone done, that we're not going to get anything done for us. So these are the questions that we don't understand what's going on around here. It, it, it's sort of, it's confusing if you look at it from the outside looking in because the same storm hit the same coastline. Fiona didn't know whether or not uh, she was striking Channel Port of Basque or Burnt Islands or anywhere else. So I don't know what difference the government is making inside of this. Storm damage from that storm is storm damage. Exactly, uh, and that's, just that's don't what understand. we don't understand. I don't either. No, we don't. So now we've contacted a newspaper in Port of Bass, the Rickhouse Weekly, yep. to try and see if they can start investigating in this for us. We've went over, or E's went over, and also I looked at some minutes, because we've had a couple meetings now with our town. Um, we've looked at the minutes. There's very little talk about it, Fiona in our minutes. We approached the... Deputy Mayor, our mayor was on leave for a short time. So uh, we approached the deputy mayor in a meeting and asked, can you do the impact zoning around here to see what what can be done for us? Um, he said, sure, he said, I can. But once we go down that road, there's no turning back. And we understand that. Whether it's going to bring us some armor stone fill to put in our backyards to protect us, or we've got to move out of this location, relocate us in Bird Islands, you know, we're willing to do that. We, we, we're thinking about the safety of our, of our families. Um, we had a meeting last week. In the meeting, one councillor said, basically said, I don't get paid enough to do this. Is that what you feel about your community? 
I, I can't speak for any council, but I'm sure they're exacerbated with their inability, I imagine, to get answers as well. We'll keep trying to get answers for you and Murray and everyone else in Burnt Islands because there's, if there's a reason, then someone should tell us because that's the problem with government communications. Sometimes silence just makes people even more angry than they possibly need to be. Not saying that you're in that position, but no. silence is just ridiculous. It's just that communication strategy never has worked for any government, provincially, federally, municipally, ever. If there's a reason or a rationale, tell us. If not, then you know, you're just going to hear more calls from Holly, Murray, and whoever else. Uh, anything well, else you want to say this morning, Holly, before we go? Well, it's, it seems like Fiona have come in and destroyed our lives, have made bad friends, bad enemies of, of everyone. Um, you know, everybody is stressed. Our lives are consumed of Fiona right now. And all we're asking for is we know we got to wait. We understand we got to wait. But just some answers. Point us into some direction that we're going to get. But right now we just feel like we're totally lost. We've been forgotten about. We'll see what we can find out on your behalf as well. I'll touch base with the folks at the Rec House Weekly to see how they're doing with it and where we can play a role as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call, Holly. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, well, we have been talking about the fact that there's Newfoundlanders. We'll find out exactly how many that have been competing in the Adult National Championships in St. Hyacinth in Quebec. Uh, wraps up today. Join us on line number four right after this break is the General Secretary of the National Darts Federation of Canada. That's Christine Stark. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. As advertised, join us on line number four is the General Secretary of the National Darts Federation of Canada. That's Christine Stark. Good morning, Christine. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for making time for the show. Not a problem. Anytime we can promote darts, we for sure will. How are the national championships going? I know they wrap up today. That's right. Today is our last event of the mixed doubles, and everything has been going fantastic. I do have some good news to report for for the Newfoundland Labrador player members here and all their families and spectators back home. We have some good results for your province. Let's hear them. Uh, on Monday, we had a World Cup qualifier where men and ladies get to play to represent Canada at the World Cup. And this year it's being held in Iceberg, Denmark. And Joanne Walsh from the Bishop Falls area will be one of the players representing our country in September. That's fantastic. I mean, before we get too far into this year's results, I, I suppose it's really hard to understand the strength of darts on the recreational scene, even though most every basement I've been in in this province has a dart board. But how, what's the health <laughs> or the strength of it on the competitive level? Canada is actually making their mark in the world. Every year we make strides. A lot of our uh, members are being seen overseas, on TV, and in upper levels. So our organization starts that and all of those basement dartboards come a long way when you get to see all of the provinces and territories represented here. So uh, I know some of the big names from the years past, you know, of course, people in this province will be familiar with Albert Anstey and then, of course, John Part, who had a great run on the big scene in the Premier League and uh, followed up with, as an announcer. Who are some of the names to look out for? You just gave us uh, one of the women representatives on Team Canada. Who are some of the big names in Canadian darts? 
oh, we have we have a lot of big names that have re- been represented on the stage. So the Jim Long from Ontario is here, and he has a lot of people would recognize him from a previous shoot between a competition between North America, you know, Canada and the U.S. He was on stage. We have Jeff Smith from New Brunswick, who is representing Canada very well. Matt Campbell. Uh, is also on the world stage and on the TV following in the footsteps of John Part. Those are more on the professional side. On the amateur side, if you want to call it, Newfoundland Labrador, you can watch out for Joanne Walsh because not only did she win a spot on our world team, yesterday was our singles competition. So I'm going to go into the results. And Newfoundland Labrador has the Canadian National Women's Singles Champion in Joanne Walsh. Wow. She won it yesterday. Terrific. And then the day before was a women's competition and Newfoundland Labrador once again has a championship team in the ladies doubles of Kiara Taylor and Sandra Squires. So Newfoundland Labrador, you you guys are making your mark here at the Nationals this year. I love it. Throw some other names that I'm familiar with out there. Uh, David Cameron, John Norman, of course, from Shea Heights, has been on the big stage here, played in England as well. Uh, Dawson Merchell, I know, is another name that's been kicking around at the top of the competitive level. What does it take to move from being a top-flight recreational player to being a professional? I mean, what's that process? We know what it's like in other major sports. You get drafted, you get signed. Uh, You know, in individual games like this, you maybe bring on sponsors or what have you. How do you turn pro in darts? Well, you have to do a lot of traveling and a lot of practicing, and those sponsors definitely help. As an individual, you have to make your own path. So you start with organizations like ours. We're NDFC for short, because National Darts Federation of Canada is a mouthful to say. But you start at the NDFC, and then with, believe it or not, with COVID, online darts has become a major thing. And that has now opened up doors for somebody who's playing in the basement to make connections across the world. And then you can travel to all of those tournaments on your own. And then they have their own qualifying shoots to get what they call a professional tour card. Kind of like the PGA in a way. You have to make so many points and and then you earn your spot on that tour. How does online darts work? Online darts is... uh, it's come a long way. You have a program, and actually we are using it here this week. It's Dart Connect. And you can hook up to your webcam as well as a scoring app, and you can play anybody anywhere in the world, anytime. <laughs> Pretty cool stuff. Well, I guess like we've learned a lot of advancements with uh, Zoom meetings and online competitions, and whether it be chess online, the explosion in the numbers there. Did we see an increase in the number of darts players at the highest levels because of COVID as well? Because we were kind of in the house, and in the house was where the dartboard was. Oh, yes. Last year when we returned to regular in-person competition, the number of players that came out that you know maybe hadn't made their name in the sport before surely left their mark on it and it was because of the online darts over COVID. So one of the advancements we are doing this year with the NDSC is allowing that scoring app to be used here, which then also allows people in the provinces across the country to watch how their family members or friends are doing. They can actually watch live games, not the people, but the actual scoring. 
the difference between a top quality recreational player and even inside the world of the professional darts players, I would imagine, I'll get you to back me up if I'm right or correct me if I'm wrong, is that they most of them, they have the ability to go out on a 170. They can throw an iron darter. They can hit the 180s. But it's the consistency. When you watch the Premier League darts players, it's truly remarkable how they've got the 20 beat to death or if they're 19 shooters. But I imagine that's the, the difference between the goods and the greats is simply consistency because they can all hit the triple 20. That, that is correct. And the consistency comes with time and practice. And let me tell you, if darts in Canada keeps going the way it is, we will have more than, you know, the, the scattered numbers that we've seen on the world stage. We will be represented represented very well down the road. Give us an idea of what you what you know of how much they practice. Like a, a John Part, when he made his way over and actually won tournaments in the Premier League, what kind how many darts would he throw a day a week? What do you think? Well that's on your own individual because of course we all have lives and, and work schedule. But I've been talking to a couple of people here and they were practicing three to four hours a day just to make it to this level here. So uh, that seems to be you have to put a number of hours in daily in order to make it up to that consistent level in order to be our champion. Well, uh, it's so great that the timing worked out where you're able to announce a lady from this province as the uh, singles champion nationally, Joanne Walsh. Anything else you'd like to tell us about this particular tournament or anything in the darts world before we say goodbye, Christine? Well, in the darts world, you can always do searches online. A lot of events are being streamed. Um, the NBFC helps our players go overseas, and I would say Newfoundland, Labrador, you have quite the pool of players to choose from, and the talent there is just phenomenal. And just as a way to wrap it up, inside the uh, your Hall of Fame, three Newfoundlanders are represented back in 2002. Albert Anstey was awarded the Hall of Fame honors. That same year, Cavell Taylor from Newfoundland and Labrador was inducted. And in 2001, Amy Earls. So we've got three members of the Hall of Fame from this province as well. Pretty great. Yes, and I've got to play against a couple of them. Oh, cool. Uh, how was your game like? Well, it's not the same as it used to be since I'm now on the administrative end of it, but I've been around a while, and on occasion I can hold my own and have represented my province proudly also. It's great to have you on the show, Christine. Thanks for making time. You're very welcome. You have a great day. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Christine Stark, General Secretary of the National Darts Federation of Canada. Brilliant. <laughs> you know me. You love that, right? Uh, let's uh, go to the break. When we come back, though, David Brake is actually next. He's the Director of Comms and Advocacy with Transit Action Atlantic. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's say good morning to the Director of Comms and Advocacy with the Transit Action Atlantic. That's David Brake. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Happy to take your uh, call this morning. I've been hearing uh, a lot of concern about uh, helping tourists and business people to uh, to get to the island with uh, with the easier direct flights. There's a, there's a missing piece, though. Um, you could make the the flights here uh, direct much. You know, you could reduce the, the cost of flights a lot, and it would still mean leave a lot of people basically unable to uh to be a tourist in this province um because once the problems would start as soon as they they landed on the ground uh, and the, the the problem is simple if they they don't have a car or they can't drive or they don't feel comfortable driving they're they're out of luck um if they and, and that's leaving leaving aside the lack of rental cars more rental cars wouldn't necessarily solve the problem for them um 
I was looking at the stats. People from Ireland, for example, uh, a potential tourist from Ireland, half of the people 18 to 24 years old don't have a driving license. Only There's only, only one car for every two people in, in, in Ireland in the first place. Of course, in the UK and Ireland, they drive on the left side. So how comfortable are they going to be um, driving around in an unfamiliar place uh, on, the, on what for them is the wrong side of the road? Well, there's not much we can um, do about that, though, all the same. Well, we could have a system where people didn't have to drive everywhere, where there was an option to uh, to take some form of regional transit to get around. And now, of course, the, the other option, which is uh, good if you have the money, would be to, to, to book a coach tour. And there are there are some. But um, the economics of that is not going to work for everyone. I mean, uh, I've, I've looked at it. Uh, the, the cost of a, of a 12-day tour, uh, not including all meals, is nearly $500 a day, um, which is, yeah, absolutely. It, it's, a, it's a fun time. I'm sure they do a great job. For, but it, it leaves out a lot of people. Um, would leave out people who uh, wanted to go and, and see the land of their uh, some of their relatives. Um, if the relatives weren't in the position to, to drive them around everywhere, you know, um, or or young people who just want to see a new place. Um, obviously, I'm I'm talking there about, about tourists, but a, 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 some form of uh, regional uh, transit system would also serve lots of other people like newcomers, uh, many of whom, uh, even if they were able to drive in the country of origin, are treated, not wrongly necessarily, as if they had no driver's license uh, when they come to this country and then they have to apply and go through as if they were, you know, teenagers, which means if they need to get around, uh, they've got a year of substantial inconvenience and then high costs of being treated like they, you know, were a teenager in terms of not having driving history and so on. Uh, we just, I feel that the, that the province is, is not taking seriously the the necessity to provide another option for people, whether it's tourists or newcomers or anyone else. Sure. It, I mean, awesome. when I travel, I mean, it's not lost on anybody from here that when you go elsewhere to, not even, to, doesn't even have to be a major metropolitan center. It's just how much public transit is available, whether it be with buses or trains or whatever the case may be. And we're never going to have a subway system or that kind of thing, but they've got it figured out. And consequently, they're not as car dependent. The roads aren't as congested. I would imagine that comes with an issue regarding safety and ease and cost but let me ask you from this angle we haven't been able to figure out public transit in the northeast avalon how do we then extend and whether it be some form of transit options for more remote rural parts of the province how does that look and work and who would be responsible for that type of initiative because we're not really that settled with metrobus oh, oh i agree but I, th- I think that they're they're Quite legitimately, two kind of classes of of transit, if you like. Uh, obviously, there's your day to day transit uh, around well populated areas uh, where you know bus might turn up uh, every 20 minutes, uh, and you use it on the regular in that way. Uh, you don't need to be thinking in those terms for the, for the entire island or anything close to it. But if uh, if you want to get to, from from one community to another, if you want to get from from the Avalon Peninsula to uh, Bonavista or Gander or so on, there are ways to do it. There are ways. Oh yeah. 
to, to book individual um, vans and so on. But a, new, a, a tourist, for example, would have to go and look up, like, uh, only, in fact, the only way I've found uh, is to look. You might find a long list of individual uh, vehicle providers. You'd have to ring around each day you're planning to go anywhere, find the provider who happens to run a, a, a bus, see if they're running, and uh, find out what they cost, and do that every stop along the way of, of where you want to go, um, which is a huge barrier. And of course, um, if it, since none of this stuff is scheduled, or at least not obviously scheduled, you couldn't figure out what the schedules were, uh, it, you might find yourself at a, at a particular spot and the next place you want to go, oh, there's not a, you know, I'm not running that day, I'm on holiday, or, you know, there's not enough people to fill the, the van or whatever. There's no reliability there. There's no comfort of knowing, well, if I get to place X, I can then get to place Y. There may be a public, a, a private provider who can get you between those two places, but you won't be able to know in advance what it's going to cost you, whether you know, what the timing is going to be like. There needs to be a scheduled, it doesn't need to be the kind of every 20 minutes thing you get in, in, uh, in a major uh, populated area, but knowing that there was a, a coach that would go three times a day between key sort of hubs that would get you from point to point in a reliable way. And then once you were at the next major place you wanted to go, then you could, you could book a taxi from there if you needed to. But, um, but the, the, we don't even have that sort of skeleton. With a, the second of the, the, the DLR, uh, you, we don't have that skeleton at all, and we have no government support for any of it uh, or, or, or government coordination that would help people to even take advantage of the private providers there are. It, it's just, uh, well, I mean, for, for, as you say, for people who are used to that kind of thing, whether, whether in Europe or even indeed almost anywhere else in Canada, uh, people might reasonably be sort of taken aback to find that they couldn't do it. And that could be not the cost of the flights. That could be the, 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 where the conversation ceases for, for people because you, there's, there, it takes a, a trip to Newfoundland from appealing to, well, unfortunately impossible or price prohibitive or just too complicated. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised there's not more public support for trying to see what we could do at the provincial government level to increase access, direct flights, whether it be Newark or New York or Heathrow or Berlin or what have you. There's a lot of upside too, but it seems to me that people just think, oh, that's just for the big muckety-mucks to make their life easier, but I think it's bigger than that, just on a personal note. Uh, David, anything, a final thought before I have to go to the newscast? Um, no, I... I uh I guess we'd still like to say it, if, if people are thinking about costs, they need to, uh, and, and practicality of, of some of these other uh, steps, I, I feel like uh, the cost of having a, a regional transit system that would serve so many other additional purposes should be in the mix. If we, can, if we, can, if we are considering spending money on subsidizing direct flights or spending money on uh, providing more availability of, of rental cars and so on. Uh, if you're in the tourism business and, and you are concerned that you can't get uh, can't get people to your place because they can't get rental cars, 
this is this kind of thing needs to be in the mix somehow because it just doesn't it doesn't come up in the conversation which is why i'm on the show you know uh, i'm not saying it's it's feasible i'm not saying you know it's cost effective but i like someone to do the math <laughs> and and see how it works in a bigger picture i'm glad you added it to the conversation this morning david thanks for the time my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. That's you David Brake. He's the director of comms and advocacy with Transit Action Atlantic. Uh, David's in the queue. wants to talk about the closing of the Cannon Bridge, a couple of carbon tax conversations, a fundraiser for St. Vincent de Paul. Whatever you want to talk about, we can do it after this. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. David, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you this morning? Very well, sir. How about you? Ah, uh, bad. Uh, just talking about the Canning Bridge there for a second. I heard the mayor on talking about it earlier there. Mm-hmm. But uh, the closing of the Canning Bridge has created another problem because right now we've only got one road leading to all the businesses and places in Marystown, and the whole hub of the Beyond Peninsula, the whole uh, district of the Beyond Peninsula, Marystown is the hub, right? Right. So it was like the Trans-Canada Highway going to St. John's, I'll say. So everybody is using that one highway. Now, people are not obeying the rules. You can look behind you, and there's, there's people in trucks and cars. They're banging their fists on the, on the steering wheel because they want to drive faster. They don't want to drive the speed limit because... They're not going anywhere, really, most of the time, McDonald's or, or Tim Hortons, but they're in a great big hurry to get there. And what's going to happen, one of those mornings or evenings, is going to cause a major accident. People got to start obeying the rules. They're passing people in 50 zones. Uh, just, they just don't care. They want to get there an hour before they uh, need to get there. So everybody has to obey the rules and slow down, I think. Well, certainly. And I know it's frustrating. You know, I won't say 10-minute drive from Little Bight is now 30 minutes. I get the frustration that people are uh, speaking to, but nobody wanted the Canning Bridge to be deteriorated to the point where it had to be closed. And then I got an email email from a uh, person in the region talking about uh, the fact that the first responders could still use the bridge and why is that allowed versus, you know, a single passenger car versus a big fire truck or what have you. I guess in that case, we're talking about life and death as opposed to ease and convenience. So, and I'm not trying to belittle people's own uh, time issues and drive, driving time, but I guess first responders is because they're responding to emergencies, right? You know, so. Well, exactly. I mean, uh, if, you, if you had a chance to live in, uh, isn't it better for an ambulance to get there in five minutes than 25 minutes? So uh, anybody thinks that is uh, really not very smart. But in the meantime, that highway coming from Grand Bank, Lawn, St. Lawrence, everybody using the same highway to access the businesses, the shops, the, the hardware stores, everything in Marystown, okay? So if you're driving the speed limit, on that highway, and you got somebody behind you, a contractor or whatever, and they're banging on the, their fists on the steering wheel because you, they want you to drive faster. And there's a string of traffic in front of you, probably 30 or 40 cars. You know what it's like? It don't make you feel very good, right? Well, no, of course not. And, I mean, aggressive driving is a key feature of driving around where I live. I can guarantee you that. And it doesn't matter if it's the road is open or closed. Well, that's what happened. That's what's happening here now. And I mean, I've come up on accidents on the highway where there's bodies on the side, of, on the, in the middle of the road, in a crumpled mist. I know what it's like. Some people have, and some people have. But if that happens, 
in a string of traffic, you're going to have more than one fatality. You're going to have perhaps three, four, five, or six. So, and there's tractor trailers using this now. There's a paving companies using the same highway. Everybody, ambulance drivers, everything is using the same highway to access Marystown. Right? Because that's the, that's the only way you can get there. Yeah, so. hopefully frustration doesn't lead to more collisions and consequently maybe injuries or worse. Uh, anything else you want to say about it this morning, David? No, that, uh, that's all I want to say. Just uh, people use their head and uh, be a bit sensible. You're only going a, a few minutes away, so take your time. Fair ball. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, so let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number eight and say good morning to the CEO of the Labrador North Chamber of Commerce. That's Julianne Griffin. Julianne, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Excellent today. How about you? Good. Very busy. And I would imagine excited, given the fact that the uh, Expo Labrador opened up a couple of days ago. It actually runs through today. Attracted a pretty significant number of attendees, whether it be with delegates or trade shows or artist exhibits. Paint us a picture of what people are seeing at the Expo. Yeah, it's a very, very busy year this year, which is great, which means the in, the uh, interest in, in Expo Labrador and developments in Labrador is only increasing. So we're quite happy we had a lot of returning uh, artists and businesses, uh, representatives of industry, educational institution, nonprofits. Uh, so we had 450 delegates in total and 70 trade show exhibits and artists and small businesses selling products yesterday. A couple of key focus areas. Look, there's a lot of optimism in Labrador for a variety of reasons. Number one, mining potential and specifically critical minerals. Are you hearing much from the major developers about any plans that are in the offing? We know that the you know, $1.25 million for Tacora to deal with their manganese as separated from iron ore. So are you hearing much about some big plays that are in the near future? Absolutely. So as we speak, we have the Unlocking Critical Mineral Potential in Labrador session taking place, and Tacor is actually one of the speakers on the panel. Uh, we also have Torngat Metals, and we have a representative, Paul Carter, from uh, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, along with Chris Webb from the Nunatsula Group of Companies. So they're speaking about, you know, Labrador's home to tremendous mineral wealth and has the ability to supply the soaring global markets. So they're talking a little bit about um, partnerships with uh, communities and indigenous groups and uh, how this government can support them, whether it's through policy development or uh, funding or other discussions. So it's, uh, it's a, a jam-packed session today. It's a full room. Uh, but absolutely, you're right that critical mineral potential uh, in Labrador is, uh, is only increasing. So it's one of the key focus areas of Expo. What's the conversation surrounding electrification? Because all of these expansions are going to require power. Power seems like we have an excess of it, but that's not necessarily true if we have some big power drains like some of these mines would be. So what's the conversation surrounding stable and affordable energy? So we actually have a panel luncheon today at 12 o'clock here in Goose Bay, and it's on the power of electrification. So we have uh, Peter Woodward, who's the president and CEO of Woodward Group of Companies, who's speaking about um, shipping and what that uh, sort of uh, sector looks like in terms of power needs and, uh, I guess, getting infrastructure and uh, other things prepared uh, in terms of uh, power and electrification and what that might look like. Uh, We have a representative, uh, Walter Parsons, from Hydro to speak from the Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro perspective. Um, and we also have someone from um, one of the power companies in Iceland, and Iceland is almost 100% on sustainable and green energy. So that perspective from a global uh, lens is really important too. So, um, and you're right, from mining operations to transportation and even community sustainability, there are a lot of discussions around how we invest in and secure the future of energy across Labrador, um, and how do we ensure we do it so it's stable and affordable uh, and with communities at the forefront. So that'll be the focus of the session today. Sustainability 
these two different forms, isn't it? It's one thing for a sustainable growth for a business, quite another for what's left behind in the community. So we know there's a housing crunch in many parts of Labrador. How do you talk about sustainability with, you know, hopefully this doesn't simply become more fly in and fly out. Labrador is a massive work camp as opposed to communities growing and everything that comes with it, amenities and housing in particular. How does that dovetail into the business side? Because they they want to do what they do. They want to mine, they want to make money. But of course, that has an impact on community if everything isn't taken into consideration. So the only way to do it right is to consult with communities and have those, you know, somewhat lengthy, difficult discussions, which could take years. Um, But what we're sort of hearing from the Indigenous groups and other people here at Expo is take your time, do it the right way, show up in community. Um, If you're showing your commitment to uh, development in the community and and strong consultation, you need to come up to Labrador, you need to visit communities, you need to do a full round of consultations uh, in a variety of sectors. So it's, it's take that opportunity. And really what we're seeing with some new businesses that are attending this year, which is great to see, is, um, you know, providing the, the information to them about how to do that and why it's important, why it's different for either, every Indigenous group, why it's different in, um, in Labrador communities. So people are really taking away as they leave and with the discussions that I've had with the delegates of a stronger understanding of doing business in Labrador, how communities want to sustain their own futures. They want to ensure that there's uh, sustainable employment, for example, the infrastructure is there, uh, the government uh, understands uh, where the priorities lie and um, and communities are really at the forefront and that's what Expo Labrador is all about this week. Uh, last one on the energy front once again. So are there any wind plays for domestic power use in Labrador? Because all the ones we talk about on the island are wind, the hydrogen, ammonia and all the rest of it and I know wind can't be the only source of power for a mine expansion but even when we think back to Charlottetown and the fire, we just replaced that power supply with another diesel generator as opposed to looking to uh, other alternatives that are healthier, greener, more affordable. So any talk of wind plays or other alternative forms of energy? There are quite a bit. So we actually on the first day had a community approach to sustainable energy session. So we heard from uh, New Natural Government, for example, uh, the regional energy coordinator is Jamie Hewlett. So we talked a lot about how they're developing different green energy uh, projects and smaller scale for sure, but um, how they're looking at, again, sustaining their futures with different projects in every new Nassibet community on the north coast of Labrador, which is very impressive. So it's on a smaller scale, but it's it's all about their needs. It's what do they want for their community? How do they employ local individuals? So energy is a huge um, theme for sure this week. And we actually had Charlene Johnson, the CEO of Energy NL, up here yesterday. Um, spoke very, you know, a lot about the developments in Newfoundland, but is very excited on uh, sort of, uh, I guess, growing energy now up into the Labrador region. So I, you know, we introduced her to some people here. She's got some key contacts. Um, so you know, a lot going on in the energy future for sure, and uh, even solar energy project, which is under uh, development now uh, in Sheshashi in First Nation. So there's there's lots to learn up here for sure. There's going to be strong takeaways for people who leave at the end of today. The energy is incredible the trade show was buzzing yesterday uh so we had excellent weather so that's you know always makes people happy so it's been a a phenomenal couple of days um and this is just the end of a really truly amazing week that we had here last one i'll let you go on this one i don't know your uh, position on it but from me and i'm not involved in the industry whatsoever but you know we're the only democratic country on the face of the earth with all of the minerals required whether it be for electric vehicle batteries laptops cell phones whatever the case may be we do a good job with uh extracting and then we do a pretty good job with exporting, but we do a pretty poor job in the country on, in every industry with secondary or tertiary processing.
processing. So on the supply chain issue, we have a massive opportunity in front of us, not only to extract, but to produce as opposed to buy back a finished product. Where are the conversations on that front? Because that's the real golden goose. Absolutely. And that's the discussion that's going on right now in the critical mineral session is, you know, how the presenters kind of see that unfolding, what infrastructure needs to be in place, how do we capitalize on the demand, so everything from production to supply chains, how do we connect to the global markets, Um, how do we access that, what does that look like, and then, of course, how are we engaging our northern indigenous partners, Um, you know, much of the development is taking place in, in those regions. Uh, and then, you know, attracting investment in this evolving industry. So that's really what everyone is talking about now. Um, but lots of discussions around global supply chains and what that might look like and how, you know, communities, again, are at the forefront in ensuring that it's done in a sustainable way uh, with their needs uh, uh, front and center. If we can capture all the moving parts uh, adequately or properly, there's a massive future for Labrador. I appreciate the time this morning, Julianne. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Julianne Griffin, CEO of the Labrador North Chamber of Commerce. Expo Labrador wraps up today. There is huge opportunity there. Uh, 90% of the $5.2 billion of mineral exports from this province comes from Labrador. Quick note, yesterday someone asked uh, about the uh, whether or not there was a black, black box in the Titan submersible. I had just heard an interview with a former submarine captain in the Royal British Navy, and he said no. There's been reports today that there's some sort of data recorder has been recovered, and sent off to the MBI, the Americans who are doing the investigation here. So some sort of data recorder. What exactly that means, not sure. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about heat pumps and carbon tax with Greg from Port Basque. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Greg, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Greg Sheaves in Port Basque. I don't mind I don't mind saying who's calling all the time because anything I gotta say I don't uh, I don't mind any controversy over it after. But about this carbon tax so the government is calling it, I call it a tax grab, you know, to everyone in the public and to everyone who's in business or Uber can, needs to continue to work. And really, you know, the actual base price of fuel is not much, but when the provincial governments and federal governments are greedy, you know, they tack under provincial tax, they tack under federal tax, they, tar- they tack under carbon tax, and then they had the balls to charge HST on all four. You know, which is ridiculous when you charge a tax on a tax. And right now, with this carbon tax, as far as I'm concerned, I would blame the oil companies and our provincial government, the Liberals, and they are saying that they agree with it, or they don't agree with it, you know, but just to make it sound like they really care when they really don't. Because if they really care, don't collect it. Like, just tell the oil companies, don't collect it, and we're not going to collect it, and we're not going to submit it, so oil what compa- are you going to do? But the oil companies don't collect the carbon tax, and the province will have no no position to do anything about it on the 1st of July because it's the federal carbon tax, so the federal government will be collecting it, not the province. Yeah, but it's still got to be taken from the gas stations or someone, like it's being put on the pumps on, on the island of Newfoundland. So if they care notify these business people don't put it on if they don't agree don't put it there so if they don't put it there and they don't collect it what are they going to do about it you know we've got a few thousand politicians all across canada controlling the mindset of 37 million people like there's something wrong with us yes we are nothing but a bunch of puppets you know to even allow them to do whatever they feel and whatever they want to vote on and like you know it's crazy and we're taxed to death 
I'm not sure. It I, should never be. I'm not sure. I understand your point about businesses not collecting what would be legislated a requirement for them. That remittance, there's there's no wiggle there. Do you think an independent business owner would say, "Okay, Premier Fury, I won't do that. I'll face my, I'll face the penalty with the federal government. No problem." Yes, but if, if Andrew Fury is so concerned about it, he should back up our residents. That's the people who voted those people in. And we can all stand together. Like, But no, we're puppets. We fall down every time they open their mouth. Oh, we're going, oh, yes, please do it. Like, put another knife in our side, you know? And and we don't have the, the guts to stand up to them. But if these companies don't collect it, how can they submit it? It don't have to go and don't do it. But no, because they want to, because of their own personal greed, they want to keep taking more and more money from people. And if you look at, for example, we're bringing in all these immigrants. I got nothing against people like that. Great for them to get a job. But why? It's because there's no incentive for our local people to go to work anymore based on what we're getting paid. And everybody is taxed to death in the grocery stores based on carbon tax that's added to the cost of transportation, the cost of vehicles that you buy. Everything just gets tacked on, tacked on, tacked on. So if people are on social services, I can't blame them because at least they got their homes paid for. They got groceries on the table. You know, they've got a drug card. They don't, if, if they got, you know, high cost of drugs, great for them. Plus, people on social that, assistance aren't exactly living high on the hog. No, they're not living high no, on the hog, Patty, but they got the option to go out and work on the side also. Plus, most of them got their own little cabins or they got their trailers and, you know, but there's what I'm saying is the point being taxed to death, why should you even go to work? You know, that it's got everybody so discouraged because of government greed. And like I say, a few thousand people controlling 37 million. There's something wrong with us. We don't have no backbone to stick up against them and get those liberal people out because they're killing our country. Day after day, they're doing it. And, and it's all about saving the environment. Now, let's look at some of these issues. Just hold on one second. They, I mean, the okay. the current minority parliament, where the Liberals ran in 2021 with this exact plan, and people had their say. Two-thirds of the country voted for a party that had a price on pollution. So I don't know if that makes them spineless or gutless or puppets or whatever the words you're choosing, but that's the options we have is when the campaigns come around and the opportunity to vote for one politician, one party or another. So nothing changes when you say that there's X number of politicians uh, controlling the mindset or the lives of 38 million Canadians or 40 million Canadians now at this point. How does that change regardless of who's in government? Well, a lot of people vote, you know, politicians in, but once the politicians get in, then they change all the rules, and the people say, well, I didn't vote you in for that. That's who's making the decisions after the fact. Well, in the world of carbon tax, people can like it or hate it, it doesn't matter, but the carbon tax implications uh, have not changed. You know, the only thing that's... What? But the the carbon tax, Patty, is nothing but a crock. Nothing but a total crock, because, you know, here we are out in the real world, with, like, say, for example, heavy equipment, trucks, tractor trucks, we don't have an alternative. We cannot buy an electric truck. We still got to continue burning diesel fuel in order to make a living. But the government is trying to cut our throats to try to survive. That's our biggest problem. Now, <clears throat> everything is about to save the environment, so they had to go and do 
<clears throat> Muskrat Falls to have clean, green, renewable energy. But in return, so-called save the environment, they destroyed thousands of hectares of land in Labrador to flood for the backup reservoir for the dam where foxes and rabbits and birds and everything. That is our environment that they destroyed. Then they destroyed thousands of hectares of land all down through Labrador, all down the northern peninsula, all across Newfoundland, all the way to Port Basque to Cape Ray, where birds nested, rabbits. That is the environment. They're saying that they're saving the environment, but they're destroying it. Who are you blaming Muskrat Falls on? I'm just telling you about how government uses this brainstorm idea to get clean, green energy to save the environment, but in turn, they're destroying it. That is the environment. All of those trees, woods, birds, yeah, habitat. Everyone understands that. That is the environment. Yeah, but I, you don't understand, Patty? Come on. I just you said, do understand. You're just acting stubborn on me. I just but, said, I understand that. So it's funny how you just uh, turn that into, I don't understand. But what I said is, okay, I understand I, that. Okay, I apologized. I apologized. And of I course, you said you don't understand. No, no, no. Of course I understand. If you destroy habitat, okay. that comes with an issue regarding biodiversity, environmental protections, everything. Of course it does. Um, yeah. But of course, and this is not a silly liberal government issue because Muskrat Falls is quite clearly uh, the brainchild of a then conservative government and was given a federal loan guarantee by the federal conservatives as well. So this is not all about silly liberals or common sense conservatives or whatever the case may be because the history and the origin of Muskrat is patently clear. <laughs> we know that yeah. much to be true. Yeah, but that was, just, that, was, that was just Danny Williams into a little pissing match. That's all that was. He wanted to have a little power trip. Like, that's who I blame for Muskrat Falls is Danny Williams, well, and then as soon as he got everything on, on stream, he turns around and resigns because, you know, he, he's gone in the backdrop now. And, well, he resigned, before, he, he resigned before much of anything got done with the Muskrat Falls project. Uh, last word oh, quickly, yeah, he got to put through. You got to put through. No, it wasn't even finally sanctioned until well into uh, Dunderdale's uh, term as the premier. So, uh, last word to you before we say goodbye and take another call. You know, and then here's the government now going to announce money for converting oil to electricity and stuff. And, and only a few years ago, you could buy those heat pumps and stuff to install in your house around the $3,000 range. But because now in the government subsidies, companies are charging like up in six and $7,000. And then people, you know, most of them is going to have to install, like, a new 200-amp panel. Like, where's all this money going to come from? And people just can't afford it, you know? But people don't but have to do return, it. In return, no, but in return, the government's going to get more HST again on all these overinflated rates and the cost of the heat pumps and the electrical panels and insulation. Like, they always look after themselves. They don't care about the poor person who's living in, you know, some little remote area who can only afford to burn oil, but they just want to keep gouging them on carbon tax, provincial tax, federal tax, 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 you know? And I'm going to tell you, until we get rid of this liberal government right now who's in control, and I tell you, the ones who voted NDP also across Canada and buddy this uh, Jim Singh or whatever his name is, went on side with the liberals well, whatever his total name is anyway. But, you know, for anybody who voted NDP, I would be ticked off because if I'd have wanted to vote liberal, I'd have voted liberal. So they're just as much to blame also for following suit 
and having a majority. NDP Not voters majority. NDP voters got more than they could have ever hoped for uh, with this go-around. Because if there wasn't this supply confidence agreement between the two parties, some of the things that the NDP have been campaigning on forever and a day would have never seen the light of day. So I don't think NDP uh, voters are that disappointed with how things have gone, necessarily. The group that are clearly well, disappointed are conservative voters, and, and well, fair enough. If they, were, if they were totally, totally happy, they probably would have voted Liberal in the beginning. You know, they voted NDP because NDP stands for something a little different than what Liberal does. But then when the people that you elected as an NDP crosses the floor and goes Liberal, well, that's not what you really wanted to. You didn't vote for that in the beginning. But they got what they wanted. I would imagine. Well, as far as and on a couple of fronts, they got a couple of things they would have never had if there wasn't a minority parliament. It's indisputable. Yeah. But anyway. You know, then, but like I say, they're, they're trying to go green and electric vehicles and stuff. But it's the same as the Muskrat Falls deal, Patty. Everything that was done on that total, total project was all diesel-driven equipment. The same as now to build electric vehicles and to destroy our environment again through mining. And every piece of equipment that's going to be used to extract, you know, the minerals from the mines are all diesel-driven. But we've some, got to save the environment. Some pretty significant environmental damage done in the fossil fuel industry. I think we can all agree on that, regardless if you drive a truck or an electric vehicle. It's uh, pretty well understood. Uh, Greg, well, appreciate... Well, again, it, and, and again, that depends on what you look at it, too, because if you burn fuel, you got carbon. So carbon rises in the air, and it comes foggy, drizzle, rain, the carbon's knocked down in the ocean. What are what? most of our water filters made of? Carbon. <laughs> and, uh, I'm not sure how so, you what know, you're trying to get really at that, that, a carbon water filter. No, but, it, okay, if you make a carbon water filter, what's the carbon made out of? Like, we we got to look at some reality things here, Patty. That's all I'm saying. You know, if you're using carbon For to make sure. a filter, to filter your water and make it clean, it can't be that dangerous to the environment. Um, so, anyway. you uh, know. Greg, no, that's not necessarily how carbon emissions are calculated, evaluated, whether it be carbon sinks in the ocean or carbon sinks in old growth forests or what have you. Carbon is part of uh, life. There's no question about it. It's the amount of emissions and the rate which, with is, which is, has increased, certainly since the beginning of the industrial age, is the conversation, not about carbon water filters or that kind of stuff, no, but or carbon anyway, fiber. But well, they're not all the same thing, change, though. Yeah, same as the climate change and the global warming has been going on for millions of years, and it's going to continue with or without us. So I don't even know why they're trying to trying to make such a big difference because when the Ice Age came through Port of Basque, it lift boulders it's 60, 70 to tons up on top of hills. Is Pre- what? It's got nothing to do with the Ice Age. Uh, I appreciate oh, the time okay. this morning, well, what Greg. What happened to all that ice? What happened to all that ice back then? Where did that go? We didn't melt it because that was millions of years ago. We weren't burning fossil fuels. We didn't have diesel burning engines, but it melted naturally, and it's going to continue. So without the carbon tax or whatever, it's still going to melt. Uh, even the Conservative <laughs> Party, no, that's just complete nonsense. Uh, even the Conservative no, Party, it, it is. Even the party that you support, no, even the party you support understands and acknowledges the issue regarding climate change and the contribution of man therein. So, I mean, I don't know which party would speak to you, or maybe Mr. Bernier... And 
and some others would possibly agree with some of what you said. But even the Conservative Party of Canada, Mr. Poliev, they don't think what you just said at all. No, but all, all anyway. I'm saying, Patty, is you know for a fact What's that, that the Ice Age was here. Yes, but that's right? got nothing to do with the current conversation on climate change. It just doesn't, man. I don't know how it people does, still go back to that. Uh, it just is so nonsensical that it's hard to know where to begin no, with that conversation. Anyway, I'm late for the break, Greg. Appreciate the time as usual. You're always welcome. Okay, I'll call you again sometime. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. You. Thanks for your time. Pleasure. Okay, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, there's lots in the queue. We'll hear about it right after this. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number six. Good morning, Caitlin Clark. You're on the air. Good morning, Caitlin. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, so I was calling in that I work with the SSVP uh, Food Bank here in Carbonier. Um, and tomorrow, uh, Coastal Outdoors Carbonier is having a big barbecue fundraiser in support of our food bank. Um, so I was just calling in to spread the word about that. Um, so so the acronym you offered is St. Vincent de Paul Food Bank, right? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, St. Vincent de Paul Carbonier Food Bank. Um, so tomorrow at Coastal Outdoors in Carbonier, uh, they'll be having hot dogs, hamburgers, and soda for sale. And all of that will go to, all of the proceeds go to our food bank. They'll also be selling tickets three for $5. Um, they have some really great prizes lined up, uh, such as like Blundstone boots, uh, Fox jackets, Hilly Hansen jackets, um, some really awesome things. And there's also going to be live music and entertainment. Uh, by Larry Baldwin, Tim Brake, Harold Priddle, and Danny Drover. Sounds like a big uh, event for what you advertise as a barbecue, so that's great stuff. Uh, go down the corporate mm-hmm. uh, participants because we all know the demand at the food banks right across the country. Talk about what you're seeing mm-hmm. at the Carbonier location for St. Vincent de Paul. Unfortunately, we had bad news here with St. Vincent de Paul that was set up at Corpus Christi, but talk about the numbers of people mm-hmm. you see coming in the door. Um, over the last year, it's just, it's gotten like, um, we see new people coming in every single day and like multiple new people. Um, we currently serve over 600 clients every single month. Our organization serves a 350 kilometer area. So we serve like as far down as like Beta Verde and, um, Ochre Pit Cove, um, Whitburn. We've even gone out to um, Fergus Junction to deliver a hamper. So we serve a very big area. um, And demand has increased to the point where it's outpacing um, what people are able to donate. We're very fortunate that we have, like, such a supportive community around us and some fantastic um, partners in the community, such as Coastal, for offering to do this for us. Um, but we know that the past year with the rising cost of groceries and gas and other essentials has been difficult, not only on our clients, um, but on donors as well. Um, so that's one thing that has really been impacting us is um, all the price increase and stuff. Um, like I know in the food price report, it's predicted that a family of four will spend over $16,000 on food this year alone. How some people out there who are low-income earners, are, how they're making ends meet, I have no earthly idea, I have to say. No. Caitlin, uh, give us the details one more time where people can participate in the fundraising and have a bit of fun and have a bit of barbecue uh, food for lunch. 
Um, so tomorrow at Coastal Outdoors Carbonier, we'll be there from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, the Carbonier Fire Department will also be present. They'll be selling hot dogs, hamburgers, and soda, as well as tickets three for $5 and live entertainment throughout the day. Hopefully it's a massive success and go down to your corporate sponsors and appreciate the uh, mm-hmm. time you have for, have for us this morning, Caitlin. Keep up the good work. Yes, thank you so much for having us. My pleasure. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. Yeah, food bank usage. You know, you hear me talk about it all the time. The food banks at one point were a necessity and they were like a one-off and now it is a feature of how people feed themselves right across the country. The most recent numbers are now we think it's somewhere around 5.5 million out of 40 million Canadians. If it wasn't for the food bank, they would starve to death. And that's not to be sensational. That's just actual fact of the matter. Let's take a break. When we come back, the MHA, the PC member for Conception of East Bell Islands, David Brazel, he's in the queue to talk about the pending increases at the pumps on the 1st of July. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to the uh, interim leader and the member for Conception of East Bell Island. That's David Brazel, our PC leader. David Brazel, you're on the air. Thanks, Patty, and thanks for the, this opportunity. Uh, before I get in to talk about the the impending increase in taxes on people, and particularly in this province, but across the country, uh, I want to acknowledge uh, Julianne uh, from the Labrador Expo. I just uh, arrived here on the West Coast, and I spent the last two days in Labrador uh, meeting with the industry individuals, getting a f- true understanding of the potential and the hype and the positive uh, you know, feelings in Labrador and the potential it has for this great province of ours, meeting with Indigenous leaders and community leaders up there and the education institutions to talk about how we move things in the right direction. So i got to give full credit to Julianne and their group, uh, the business community in uh, Labrador particularly, uh, and all the uh, the industry and community leaders for uh, you know taking the lead on this to show that the big land has so much potential that we all share in when we benefit no matter what region we're in in this great province of ours. So I want to acknowledge that. It's my ninth one uh, and a great opportunity to meet some old friends, have some good dialogue with government officials. And just to note, this province is in a good place. Uh, if we do things uh, in the right uh, manner, and that's that's one of the issues here. But I, but I got to pivot right into my issue about the carbon tax. One of the big discussions that were had up there, particularly from industry individuals, was what will this mean for the cost of development when we bring in the carbon tax? Because don't forget, Labrador, you know, have many more restrictions when it has got to do with access uh, to goods and services. You know, this fuel tax is not just on gasoline, and that might be a misnomer that people have. It's on diesel fuel. It's on aviation fuel. It'll have an impact on you know trucking. It'll have an impact on shipping goods, have an impact on flying goods in. That's obviously going to have an impact on businesses being able to develop the resources they have in Labrador or any part of, uh, of the province of ours. But also, what does that mean for uh, industries that may be looking at developing uh, a new approach or something? What, what costing will be taking place? Will this stifle some potential development? So, you know, this is why this has been a big concern and a big discussion uh, when we're up at that's something that is very high-level positive, uh, but there's still a concern. That leads me to my biggest concern here, and we, we agree. And I, I understand uh, Greg's and West Coast, his frustration, uh, but I do want to you know, acknowledge the fact that the PC Party of Newfoundland Labrador, and I can say the Conservative Party, are very cognizant uh, that we do have a carbon emissions problem and that we do need to address the environmental impact that uh, carbons are having uh, on this country of ours, and particularly our problems also. But I will say, there's no one solution to carbon emissions problems uh, to be solved in Newfoundland and Labrador. But what I will say, a carbon tax is definitely not the solution to addressing that. And somebody will ask, you may have asked me in the past, well, what are some of the solutions? 
since 2016, Barry Pitton was our shadow minister for environment. 2016, we started bringing up to the government, the Ball administration then, let's sit and talk about, if you're going to talk about a made-in-Newfoundland-Labrador uh, process that addresses it, let's have a discussion on what that means for industry and for the individuals. Increasing people's uh, cost of living, increasing their food, increasing their cost to heat their homes, increasing their social life because any access to anything now is going to be increased dramatically. And ironically, talking to a pharmacy organization this week, telling me that the cost of, of uh, uh, medication is going to increase because that all is either flown in or trucked in in some other way, shape, or form. Things that we wouldn't even think of when we think about the cost of uh, increasing in fuels. So dramatic uh, issue here. But ironically, yesterday, when I saw the ministers get out and say, we ne all need to stand up and we need to challenge our MPs and we need to lobby, on the 12th hour, after for the last seven years, the people of this province have been crying out that we need to address this, we need to find other solutions. And there are other solutions, working with industry with incentives or working with industries with pen penalties if they don't start uh, doing things in the right manner to address the uh, carbon emissions, uh, educating our young people and our general public here on ways that they can be more cognizant of the environment and carbon emissions, uh, looking at incentives around electric cars and having the infrastructure in that works on that, reforestation is other... A lot of that's happening, though, right? Pardon me? A lot of that is happening right across the country, though, right? Yeah, but not, at the, not nowhere near the magnitude that it should have been to address the issues in the last seven years. And that's just here in Newfoundland and Labrador. The federal liberals have been going back talking about this, touting this for the last you know, 12, 15 years. Why a lot of this wasn't put in play in, in a more aggressive manner that wouldn't have had a dramatic impact financially on people, uh, to me, is a loss. And now when they get out and tout, we need to stand up, well, you know what? We needed them to stand up uh, a number of years ago when we made the overtures. Patty, you know it. I've said it a dozen times since my leadership, and it came from other leaders in our party. We would have wanted to be collaborative. We would put as much politics behind as possible. Let's sit down and find out how we can develop something that does a minimal impact on the finances of the people of this province, but also does something to ensure that the environment is secure in this province. We didn't see that. They're now crying foul at the last minute for something that they all stood in the House of Assembly and voted for. They voted for this. We voted against it, and we gave a multitude of reasons why. And I will tell you now, not one of my constituents, and I, I doubt one of any uh, district in this province will tell you that a carbon tax is going to do anything to really uh, improve the environment or carbon emissions uh, in Newfoundland, Labrador, or anywhere in this country. There are other alternatives, other approaches that should be escalated, uh, that should be educated to the individuals of what part they can do, and minimize the impact on people. The other issue here is disparity. We, in Newfoundland, Labrador, we already take enough hits on every other thing uh, when it comes to disparity uh, from the federal government. In this case, we're going to be hit the hardest. And I had a conversation with a number of my colleagues in Atlantic Canada. Uh, they're to feel the pinch and they're outraged but we particularly in this province are going to be hit even harder and i don't think people understand the impact this will have on other industries tourism industry uh the fishing industry look at the all additional costs because everything is going to have to be trucked out we already have enough uh, challenges in our industries here uh and again you know i find it disappointing that at the last minute uh, the liberal administration in this province now are screaming crying foul and asking the people 
to do the job that they should have been doing representing them for the last decade. So, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. I had a grand conversation with Pierre Polyev in Labrador yesterday, and I know, you know, his first thing would be repeal it, and let's come up with working with industry, let's educate people, let's put the infrastructure in that gives alternatives to carbon emissions. Let's do what's right and just here for the people. But taxing people, forcing people to have a harder uh, uh, way of living and the less quality of life here does nothing for the environment, does nothing for people's quality of life, and I guarantee you, I already heard it here when I landed on the West Coast, people saying, well, you know what? We've got lots of trees here. I'm going to have to go back to burning wood. Now, tell me about the carbon emissions that comes out of wood in comparison to some of the other fossil fuels. So this was an ill-thought-out <laughs> process. I'm disappointed that the provincial liberals didn't fight more for the people of the province, and I'm still optimistically hopeful that somebody will listen in Ottawa, and I put the overture out again to the Premier and to his cabinet that we, the PC party, would work collaboratively put politics aside to come up with a solution that minimizes the impact on Newfoundlanders and Labradorians in how we address the carbon emissions in this province. But where's a provincial opportunity here at this moment? Because if we if we don't have a provincial carbon tax plan, then we can work as collaboratively as, as we like, and we can instill and install some of the policies that you spoke to about uh, personal responsibility and working with industry and all those things, because this now becomes a federal matter. Look, a couple of things. It, it's just remarkable how all of a sudden a carbon tax has become simply a liberal issue. When... That's really short-term memory for a lot of folks here because one of the number one proponents of a carbon tax in this country was former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Market pressures has long been a part of the conservative thought and, you know, the market will settle and solve all. But now that it's been implemented by the Liberals and, of course, the, the uh, conservatives pretend that they were never in favor of a carbon tax. The biggest problem here is the clean fuel regulations. We don't even know what it means. We don't know how much it adds up to. We know that the refineries have increased their margin from 10, 10% to 50% are going to pass along all of the implications and the burdens to us. For me, that's the biggest one. Because with the carbon tax, look, I don't want to pay more tax than I have to. So, And that's not a liberal thing or a conservative thing. That's a normal human being, hardworking man thing. So in the carbon tax world, for the last four years, the province collected it and kept it. Now with the federal scheme, at least to be some form of rebate, the biggest problem with carbon tax is home heating fuels. Not gasoline, it's home heating fuels. Because we will indeed see rebate that will help us cover some carbon tax as we we drive our cars and our trucks, what have you. It's the implication on home heating fuel. That's where the biggest problem lies. And if we don't figure that out, and that's where the province has responsibility and collaborative work between the PCs, the NDP independents, and the governing liberals, is to come up with a play to control home heating fuel costs. You can talk about subsidies to move from oil to electricity or what have you. Not everyone can do it because it costs a lot of money up front. Rebates are fine, but if you haven't got the cash, you can't do it. So we have to figure out a way to control home heating bills. The carbon tax issue, I think if it works the way it has in other jurisdictions it won't have the long term really painful impact that has been that's being portrayed it's home heating fuel where i think the problem lies yeah, but, you know, we've done an analysis, and so have a number of other uh, think tanks, and we cannot see the rationale behind all of a sudden you're going to increase the tax on people for home heat fuel, but because the uh, accumulated effect on that means their food is going up, their medication is going up, their social life uh, cost of living and other goods and services are going up, and then you re rebate back the same amount of money, how is that doing anything? I don't think it makes sense. I know, I've said since day one, I don't know how that makes any sense. 
No, it, does, it doesn't. And that, that, our argument there was, look, we think there are other incentives or other uh, jurisdictional uh, regulations that could be in play to, to address the carbon emissions as part of, uh, part of the process. No difference then, and I keep saying it, the sugar tax. The sugar tax has shown no evidence that it's done anything uh, to make people healthier in any way, shape, or form. Uh, matter of fact, all it's been has been a cash cow here to take money to do whatever uh, government decides they want to do. How that is an incentive to get people better educated and better informed and take a different uh, approach to uh, addressing the particular issue that they face here should be the role of government here. There's lack of leadership federally and, again, provincially here, and we're still the same overture. If we can come up with something, I don't know what it is, if we all go to Ottawa and lobby on the same uh, perspective. The difference here, Newfoundland and Labrador will be disproportionately affected more than anybody else in this country, keeping in mind our emissions are lower per capita than any other jurisdiction. So how is that fair to the people here that we're going to punish? Because we haven't had a sit-down discussion about how we address our issues here in this problem. I agree. I, you know, in, in large part, I agree with what you're saying. Government, you know, the whole current carbon tax structure doesn't make a whole, whole lot of sense. In British Columbia, where it was first implemented, they have seen not a reduction in emissions, but the historical increase in emissions consequent or in relation to the population, they have, have had some controls. And it does look like it has some impact but it does not change people's behavior at the way it's currently constructed. The governments came up gutless about dealing with the largest emitters, in particular corporate North America. Curiously, in the province of Alberta, you know who thinks that the carbon tax is okay? The oil companies. And why? Because they still enjoy enormous profits regardless of the implications that the pump for their end-use customers. So it used to be about policy, and now it's simply about politics. How this is going to work, and in this province, you're 100% right, Dave, when it comes to our emissions per capita, we are in a very, very, very good place in this province, and that should be recognized and reflected by the federal government's scheme or structure of any price on pollution. I need to know more about home heating fuel controls. I need to know more about clean fuel uh, regulation and what they mean. And again, we came up gutless. If it's about decreasing the emission footprint from the refineries, let's put the incentives and or the penalties in place to the refineries, not to me. Because I, I don't get to control how do they refine oil to gasoline. No, agree 100%. And we've been proposing this for the last number of years. And I know the Conservatives have, have been proposing it. And at the end of the day, I would have thought everybody would have s- said, let's do what's in the best interest of Canadians and particularly in, in regions that are doing uh, minimal uh, or having a minimal impact on the environment to ensure that they do even less uh, to hurt the environment here. And because we're on a good place, hydroelectric energy in this province you know, will be the mainstay. Let's continue to move that in the right direction. Let's continue to educate people about the environment. Let's continue to put other incentives in play here to ensure that people have the ability to change from a fossil fuel to something that's not going to be a detrimental cost to them just in that transition. Or because they can't do it, they're now caught and costing their cost of living is going to increase dramatically more and have a detrimental effect on their quality of life in this province. Appreciate the time, Dave. Thanks, Patty. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. It's Dave Brazel. He's the interim PC leader and, of course, the member for Conception Bay East, Bell Island. Okay, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Linda Break. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay, thank you. How about you? Not too bad, thank you. I was looking for some information on the uh, dental plan for seniors. I uh, I caught an end of your conversation earlier this morning. Uh, something about if you have receipts from October 
2022 up to, I think, yesterday. You got till tomorrow to send them in. Was that for seniors? Or? No, ma'am. That's the initial rollout of the Canada Dental Plan, and they began with 18 years of age and younger. And because, of course, this is all very, very new, I don't admit, I admit freely that I'm not exactly sure how this is working, but that was for the first group that's 18 and under. My understanding is they phase it in over the course of a couple of years. I think the next group is indeed seniors that will be covered by the dental plan, but that hasn't been rolled out in full as of yet. No, that's for the federal one you're talking about, right? That's right. Yeah, okay. Now, there was a provincial one, wasn't there? Um, there is a provincial dental plan. Uh, you know, it's low-income earners and what have you. I can, If you send me an email, I can send you the link that I have for that. Okay. Uh, I'm not very savvy with that stuff. I can probably get somebody else to uh, send it for me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, okay. And what's your email address, Patty? It's just openline at vocm.com. Line at vocm.com. Okay, I'll do that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll send it along. Inside the world of seniors, there's an income support program, adult dental program. It's not as broad as people might think, but I will send you all the details I have. Perfect. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Have a good day. You too, Bye. Linda. Bye-bye. Yeah, the first Canada dental benefit application deadline tomorrow is indeed for the first group of Canadians at the 18 and under. Okay, uh, let's see here. Let's try line number four. Lindsay, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yeah, uh, listen, I want to talk to about the uh, carbon tax again. Sure. Okay. Now, that comes on Saturday, right? Yep. Okay, and now... I also understand there's going to be a HST on it, which is what we are paying on the other two as well. Yeah, that's right. HST, nothing changes there. That's right. Yeah, okay. Now, I don't understand that because we only pay a HST on something if you went to the store and bought something. Say, like you bought furniture for your house or uh, you went to a clothing store, you got an article of clothing, whatever you want to buy, or... uh, uh, or something other like that, or gasoline for your for your vehicle and stuff like that. You pay a, a, a HST on it. But a carbon tax is not something you can buy and bring home and show your buddies when they come in what a beautiful carbon tax I got. No, you know? but I mean, carbon. You know, no, HST is charged. Tax, that's hold on, just Lindsay. Like, like a money grab, a tax on a tax. It's only a money grab. HST is a sales tax. Yeah, right. I know it's a sales tax, but we are not buying the carbon tax. We are paying the carbon tax. Yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% sure of the point you're making, but the, the GST, goods and services, or HST, which is simply the harmonized sales tax, is applied to virtually everything. You know, there are yeah, some exemptions, yeah. like groceries, for instance. Yeah, yeah, that's what I say. It applies to everything, like you're buying furniture and stuff like that, you know, something, or lumber, or something you can bring home and you can see. But you can't bring home a carbon tax and see. You know, it's not something you put in the corner of your house and show your friends when you come in. They say, well, what you got there in the corner of your house? Well, that's my carbon tax that I bought the other day. You know, you, you, you can't do that with a carbon tax. I mean, I can't argue that you can't bring home the carbon tax, but the HST oh. is a goods and services tax, which yeah, includes gasoline. We shouldn't have to pay a HST. It's bad enough to have to pay a carbon tax, and this is the third time around. I mean, so far as I'm concerned, it's getting to be a money grab. Okay. You know, that's, that's the only thing I can say. It. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the only thing I can put it down to be when it's like that. 
And other countries in the world isn't paying three or four carbon taxes within a year and paying a sales tax on a carbon tax. I mean, the United States doesn't do that. Great Britain or France or Germany doesn't do that. I'm sure Russia and China doesn't do it. Great Britain has had a, uh, a climate change levy, they call it, on industry and the public sector since 2001. Yeah, that's industry, but industry is... is and the commerce and public sectors. Yeah, there is a climate change levy in Great Britain since 2001. In yeah. Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Ireland, they started back as early as 1990. New Zealand has it. India has a, a carbon tax on coal since 2010. Switzerland has one. Uh, new vehicle sales are subjected to a carbon tax in the country of South Africa. So Costa Rica has a, a carbon tax regarding uh force protections so there's a lot of places in the world and that's not to say it's good or bad or different or whatever the case may be it's just the fact that there's pretty wide consensus that pressure on industry pressure on individuals to change their behavior what they buy how they consume that's the thought behind a carbon tax that's not me supporting it. that's just the facts of the matter here right in the united states there's a variety of states that have all sorts of taxes associated with emissions and emission trading and carbon capture and carbon credits China, same thing. They've got uh, emission trading schemes. That's a bit more of a carbon credit uh, issue as opposed to a nationwide tax. Uh, I see. And one other thing, like, uh, now what's the government going to do with all this money once they collect it? Like, uh, they got to contract it out to someone to clean up this ungodly mess that we're in. What, what does that mean, I'm sorry? Contract out? someone to do what? Contract it out to a, a corporation or a business person or whatever, you know, some contracting company to take it and clean up this mess that we're in. Now, the carbon tax is uh, simply collected and there's a remittance. The difference that we're going to see on the 1st of July is versus the province collected the carbon tax and kept it all, now there's going to be some sort of climate change, climate initiative action payment or something, just simply we'll call it a rebate. So that's the change that we will see. It's not going to cover all the increases, but it will cover some increases. So now people will be eligible for rebate versus they weren't under the provincial scheme. So a little relief. And again, this is just facts. This is not liberal, conservative, NDP or independent or rhino party. That's just the facts of the matter. Yeah, but uh, they still have to uh, give this money or contract it out to a, a corporation or somebody because you take all the uh, emission fees coming out of uh, smokestacks of our factories and uh, some of it, of course, comes from the tailpipes of our vehicles and stuff like that. I mean, you know, they're going to have to give this contract, this money out to someone to, uh, to fix those things. Uh, okay, um, I don't know what the contracting out means, but uh, it's, it's like say contracting out when the government gives contracts money out, say to fix a road or to build a new road someplace or something like that, or say they want to buy a new ferry, the government uh, contracts money out to a company to build a new ferry or something like that. So what are they contracting out to do or to build? I'm sorry. Pardon. So, in reference to a tax, what what is the point about contracting out to do what yeah, in particular? You, know, uh, you see exactly the same thing, like I, like when the government wants to get new roads built or something. Yeah, but no, or, forget or roads or ferries. Or something like that, increase the, to do something to the air, airport, they'll contract that out to a contract to do something, to, to build it. Much the same, like when they build Muskrat Falls, they had to contract it out the money to a company to build it. Of course, they, they left it in a mess, but uh, 
that's, that's, that's what they had to do with the money. They had to contract it out. Okay. Anything else this morning, Lindsay? No, that's about it. You know, I just wanted to make a point at that because, uh, like, when the government contracts makes that contract out, they shouldn't. We should know what's the name of the company that's going to get that contract that's going to clean up all this stuff. Appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Okay then. Take Lindsay. Take care, Lindsay. Bye bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. So when we come back, we're going to talk about there was a recent shooting on Livingstone Street. Yet another. Debbie's here to talk about complex PTSD, and we have indeed scheduled a conversation with Doug Pawson from End Homelessness St. John's. We've been talking about the issue. Of course, it's complex and it's nuanced, but the problem is growing. Where we find some solutions and to better the lot of life for people who find themselves homeless. Homelessness has increased 63% in a year in the city of St. John's alone. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number six. Say good morning to Doug Pawson with End Homelessness St. John's. Good morning, Doug. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad this morning. How about you? Good, good. Thanks for having us. Happy to do it. You know, sometimes I wonder if I'm just banging my head against the wall or we're just retracing old steps regarding the housing crisis here in this province and in this country. But we've got to keep it on the front burner because it's impacting every corner of societal life. So, you know, your most recent report says homelessness is up some 63 percent year over year here in the city. Yet the need or the uh, issue for governments to act seems to be uh, moving at a glacial pace versus what is the increase in homelessness. Yeah, well, you know, you're not the only one who feels that way, for sure. Um, there's lots of us in the community and around the country who are kind of banging our heads uh, as well. So, you know, this, the, the thing is, is that, you know, the housing market, for example, can change so dramatically. Labor markets can change so dramatically. The cost of living changed dramatically, forcing a lot of new folks into homelessness, new individuals, new families, um, folks who are already living very low income on the margins, no longer can afford um, their homes and uh, are entering into homelessness. And, um, you know, we've seen some large, you know, large investments announced, but, but the response time to develop those seems to be fairly slow. And, um, you know, we just need more agile responses from, from all levels of government and to be working you know, in a coordinated fashion with ourselves, with community partners, um, to really drive those resources to the most vulnerable in the community. What does that look like? Because we've had a couple of announcements in the recent past, some 1,500 affordable units, one batch of 750, one batch of 850. What does Nimble look like, and where do we start if we're going to chip away at this with the biggest need or the segment of society, the biggest need, or whatever the case may be, however I'm supposed to be phrasing this? Where do you actually start? Because affordable housing means a different thing to different people, seniors, people who are disabled, mental health issues, families, on and on it goes. Absolutely. And I mean, I think as we see, so I think it, it's important to know that if folks are experiencing homelessness, they're often in very, they're feeling there's lots of traumatic experiences because it's, it, it you know, it, it attacks your central nervous system because you're, you're very vulnerable to a system that is determining where you may stay or, or not stay on a given day. And that stress uh, can really perpetuate a lot of underlying health conditions. So I'll give you an example. So you know, Patty, you're you know you're you're somebody who's experiencing homelessness in our in our community here. Um, you're probably one of the 74% that we know of who may have a mental health disability. Um, somebody who probably doesn't have a lot of access to to mental health care. Not unlike a lot of the folks in the general population, but but what might differ you from from others is that you don't have a support system or financial resources or insurance. 
um, to, to give yourself access to this to that. And so, what happens if your health, mental health uh, uh, symptoms um, contribute to losing your housing? You know, so we're seeing a lot of folks, and I say 74% of, of hundreds and hundreds of folks in our community who are experiencing homelessness whose mental health deteriorates rapidly because rather than investing in more permanent supported housing, um, we're building more shelters. So um, I don't think we want to we want to have the most vulnerable who slip through the cracks because of no, nothing to do with their own selves, but, you know, maybe their, just their circumstance. Uh, having to resort to living in shelter uh, rather than investing in more targeted supports like supported housing, permanent supported housing, where they can get supports, where we're putting dollars targeted at the right interventions for the for those individuals who need it most. Um, and, and to not do that means people fall through the cracks. What happens, we see a lot of folks resorting to crime and petty crime. That leads up to the bigger crime issues that we're seeing in the community. And it becomes a vicious sort of vortex, if you will, that, that is really difficult for an individual and a whole community or neighborhood to get out of um, because we're not treating those symptoms, those, those underlying symptoms, something as simple as having a mental health issue that can perpetuate itself all the way down the line to you losing your home and having to, to live in shelter for long periods of time. So that's not, to me, a solution to a lot of the challenges we're seeing um, in front of us today. I think, you know, part of this is that we've got so many different government portfolios that should be intimately involved in this conversation. It's not just about child, youth, and seniors and Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. This is about the Department of Health Community Services, the Department of Justice, the Department of Education, the Department of Municipal Affairs. But I don't think we've ever seen a real concerted effort across various portfolios to talk about their role in homelessness, their role in affordable housing, because we'll focus in on one minister or another, which I think is leaving out probably 80% of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely, Patty. And I think, you know, you, you can see the problems at a system level just given your, your role and the conversations you have, similar to, to me in this context and, and a few others. But you're right. What, and what I think we're seeing today is, you know, whether it's the city determining they need to put a fence around a stage or, um, you know, investing in more shelter space rather than permanent support or housing space with the right supports, is we're seeing, we're seeing the fractures between the levels of government. And it's a real you know, convenient way of saying, well, you know, this is in our jurisdiction. Um, this may be, you know, the province or the cities or the federal governments. The reality is everybody's picking up the pieces. They're all paying uh, in one way or another for it, whether it's building a fence or whether it's cleaning, um, you know, a street, whether it's responding uh, through emergency responses to an issue in a neighborhood because crime is increasing, uh, whether it's paying for increased costs for hospital stays or, or uh, incarcerations. We're all paying for it one way or another. And you've always said this, and I've appreciated it about, about when you talk about it, is those are extremely expensive um, interventions, and they don't lead to the best outcomes. They don't lead to any real meaningful outcomes. So, you know, it's really showing the, the, fractured, between, the fractured natures between those various departments and levels of government. And uh, we really, we're never going to solve these types of big social problems if we're not working together and rolling in the same direction. 
Agreed 100%. And, you know, I, I try not to oversimplify it by saying, you know, the two most, most expensive things, but that's the reality. So for folks who say, you know, well, where's all the money coming from? And we're trying to help people who are not willing to help themselves. And you know all the arguments that people make, and mm -hmm. I understand where they come from. But if we're going to have that level of concern with money, then let's just break it down to what that costs. And not in just societal issues, but dollars and cents. Because yeah. I think there's an exercise to be had there that if you're saying, where's the money coming from? Well, how about we show you a way where we can actually save money in the long term and make people's lives better, make the community safer. I mean, I just don't know how that's not an acceptable form of mathematics for some. It's not about spending money on people unwilling to help themselves because no matter what, if they end up in court, they end up in jail, or if they end up uh, sleeping on the street or uh, on the stage of George Street or they end up in the hospital, that's a bill that we all foot, no matter how you slice it. That's not a political ideology thing. That's a math thing. Yeah. So until the conversation begins and ends with that, I just don't get it. Yeah, and, and I appreciate that you always bring it back to the dollars and cents and then tie it to is that what we really want as a community and as a society, right? So I think of, you know, the number of youth who are experiencing homelessness in our community is, is on the rise. Is that something we as a community want? Obviously the answer is no, but do we only want to respond to crisis-driven uh, interventions like what you described or like having to resort to a shelter or sleeping rough? Or do we want to get better at working together, at seeing the problems for what they are, using the data and evidence that we have as a community, and we're, we're fortunate to have that, and then starting to think about how do we target better interventions to earlier ages, right? Because the biggest predictor of homelessness is prior incidences of homelessness. And it sounds kind of intuitive, like, yeah, if you've been homeless once, you might be again. But if we're not treating it at the very early stages, supporting families, then you can see how somebody who who is going to school hungry at a very young age, who's struggling um, moving around with their parent uh, or parents, uh, are going to struggle and then ultimately be marginalized from the broader system, right? So if they're not able to to participate meaningfully and they have to resort, um, you know, to crime where they have no access to health care. They have no access to mental health care. How easy it is to slip through those cracks. So do we want to be treating it, like you say, at that point, uh, you know, of incarceration or emergency, um, you know, department health care services? Or do we want to be driving resources at an earlier stage, right, at a, at a more preventative stage? That saves everybody more money, as you pointed out, and it gives better outcomes. It gives people more chance to participate. So we have to really rethink this, and the issues we're seeing today in front of us are so big that we do have to reimagine and rethink how we're doing this, because if we don't, I, I don't see how it's going to get better. 100%. Uh, Doug, I always appreciate the time on the program and the work that you and your group do. Thanks for this. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. Doug Pawson, Executive Director at End Homelessness St. John's. And again, you know, when we're trying to deduce the value uh, or the merit of how government spends money, which we should do at every single front, every single day, every single priority, municipally, provincially, federally, there is certainly going to be some math that can clearly describe if we get housing right, it will save us money in the long term. There's just no doubt about it. So, again, that's where you need every government department that has any role in housing issues and the aftermath of people who find themselves without a home, without a safe place to live, are living on the streets, or they're surfing couches, or they're a paycheck away from being homeless. There's no doubt a better way to do this. Uh, let's take a break. Mark, you stay right there to talk about the most recent shooting on Livingstone Street. And Debbie wants to talk about complex PTSD. And then I think we have some time coming up with the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology. That would be Andrew Parsons right after this. Don't go away. 
Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Mark Wilson, you're on the air. Hey, Pat. How's it going? Doing okay this morning, thanks. You? It's a hot one. It is. Yeah, I, uh, I had to take my motorcycle out there to get uh, serviced uh, up uh, in Mount Pearl and took the bus back. I had a great ride on the bus. It was nice and cool, and it cost me $2.50. Um, that's not why I'm calling. I wanted, to, I wanted to call you about the shooting that occurred on Sunday here in the neighborhood. Um, obviously, you know, we've, we've been chatting almost weekly about some of the issues here on Livingstone, Longs Hill cashier area and um lots of lots of discussion of, of crime of of uh some of the underlying conditions um it was great to hear from uh it was it was great to to have that that uh housing chat with doug um and i think he pretty much brought up a lot of the issues that we are seeing down here i think we're kind of a perfect storm of it no doubt. I mean, you and I have spoken about the prevalence of crime and drug use and mental health concerns and the lack of police presence or the lack of action and maybe some that some of these issues could be addressed if we start with housing in addition to all the other moving parts that need to be part of this. Absolutely. I mean, just observing like I you know, I've worked on and off for as a caseworker for for uh, the House of Commons and the House of Assembly for the past what 12 years like i i think i have a pretty good idea of the issues um i'm uh, i'm not on i'm not working for anybody right now so i'm able to speak freely um what i see is that what i see is that housing is the biggest issue um appropriate housing um in our neighborhood uh i got a message this morning from one of my neighbors who um is terrified because she can't even stay in her house. She's been threatened. Her boyfriend's been threatened. They cannot stay in their own house um, because their next door neighbor has has threatened them, and it's kind of terrifying. Um, she sent me a video of of children. Uh, one kid saying, "Hey, are you going to come with us, or are you going to stay in the crack house?" And the kid was like, "I'm going to stay in the crack house." So, anyways, we we've been we've been reaching out. To the city, uh, I really like what Doug said about you know all levels of government need to deal with this. This is this is an ongoing thing. The shooting really just you know it's one more thing, Patty. It's one more thing, and we've been warning people and warning people, warning ministers, warning city council, um, and still from my May 29th letter to uh, to city council, I've only received a callback from Sheila. Sheila's been oh and uh, and Jamie Korab. Sheila has really been the only city councilor who has done anything for us in this neighborhood. Um, our ward councilor has been entirely MIA, so ward two. Um, I wanted to talk about something that's good. <laughs> it's so hard. This has taken a real toll on me living here and seeing this all the time. But there is something good, and it's the Eastern Health Harm Reduction Ban. It shows up once a week. It parks literally across from my house. There's about five staff members. Um, it's pretty busy the whole time it's there. People show up. They get uh, they get help with whatever. They might um, they might you know any any type of health 
issue. It's a first. It's a it's a place where you can stop and just talk and figure out what resources are are needed. So I'd like to see that. Like I can't understand why it's not there every single day. I don't know because I mean these are policies and you know in this case a mobile unit that we have you think it would be dispatched to the communities that need it the most constantly so i don't even know if it's out every day anywhere is it i'm not sure i think like so we you yesterday you were talking about the hub and spoke model so i believe the the hub is monday pond um the okay. collaborative care clinic there um and i think that the the harm reduction van for eastern health goes out from there and, and there are various stops but you know these this is a, a really key service for the social determinants of health that are needed in specifically in this community here um so i i don't know if it's everywhere patty i i think it does go to other places but i mean you know maybe government should just get another van <laughs> like you know there should be more or create some permanent infrastructure and create another you know maybe a satellite uh spoke or even another hub uh, where it's really needed downtown. No argument coming from me. I mean, if you don't live in those neighborhoods, you maybe can't wrap your mind around just how dangerous a situation it is, but not only speaking with you, but to Steve, and I actually went down a couple of weeks ago for a little bit of a look around, and it has the air of danger as opposed to even what the reality is if you actually live there. I spent five minutes there and I was thinking, ooh, this isn't great. It doesn't feel good, man. It feels horrible to live here. Like I think I need to sell my house or get out of here. Like it's really, it's really damaging my life. And uh, you know, I, I am trying to stay strong. And you know, I'm hearing from lots of people. People are calling me. People are messaging me, and saying, you know, Mark, what you're bringing up is really important stuff. Um, but it is, you know, it does, it does kind of hit home when we're not even getting responses from the mayor and and most of council um and we're not we're not getting anywhere yet these are complex issues as i've as as i've described to you and like you said patty it it is really hard to understand the scope of the issue down here i've been trying to share things on facebook and on twitter uh on mayor mark wilson on twitter people can check out some stuff i've been trying to like you know even share some photos of what's going on people smoking crack uh, you know, packing packing crack pipes. Um, what it's like to walk around this neighborhood is scarier than than anywhere I've been in the world. And I've been to East Van. I've been to you know parts of Mexico, uh, Japan. Like I've, I've been all over the place. I've never experienced anything that is consistently uh, consistently as, as scary as as this neighborhood unfortunately so mark i've got to get another call in, but i always appreciate your yeah. time thanks patty have a great day you too and, take uh, care cool. you do bye-bye all right let's go to line number two debbie you're on the air hello hello there hi patty uh i'm debbie sampson i called you a couple of weeks ago to talk about uh, complex ptsd uh, this is PTSD Awareness Month. Uh, at the time that I called you, I was, I guess I'd call it in remission from my mental illness. Uh, about a week and a half ago, I uh, am relapsed. 
I have two mental illnesses. One is called complex PTSD. Uh, just a little tiny background. I know you're in a hurry. Well, don't worry. Uh, Go ahead. Okay. Uh, complex PTSD is uh, because of the trauma that I've endured throughout my life, my childhood, the abuse I had, and throughout my adult life, and I developed complex PTSD. Soldiers who go to war develop PTSD, so I've lived my life in a war, so I developed complex PTSD. I also, about five years ago, developed uh, an illness called PNES. It's psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. It's very little known about it. I had to, I'm a counselor, by the way, uh, retired, well, retired, forced to retire because of my illness, but I had to actually diagnose myself, and I have a tremendous medical team. So my uh, complex PTSD and my PNES has uh, relapsed, and I've been in crisis quite a lot this past uh, 10 days. I'm a little shaky now because I've just finished having a, a mild seizure this time, so bear with me, but I, I think I can get my head around it. Um, I, I listened to your two previous callers, by the way, who did an excellent job in talking about mental health, and I, I so commend them. That we, there's so many facets to it, isn't there? Mm -hmm. uh, to, to get right to the point, because there's many, many things, Patty, that I can talk to you about in terms of complex PTSD and PNES. I, I wrote a book. I wrote my autobiography. I'm in the process of writing another book. So, you know, there's many things that I can talk to you about. But uh, the one thing that I wanted to talk about that is really pertinent to me, um, Sunday before last was Father's Day was my uh, first day of major crisis. And I'm never alone in my house. There's always someone here with me, my husband or, or someone is always here with me in the night. Really strange that I was alone that night. Um, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, I think it was something like that, and I was in crisis. I was having a major seizure. I was having uh, suicidal thoughts, bad, bad suicidal thoughts. I did not want to live. I couldn't concentrate. I was in the seizure, and I was uh, babbling and hardly coherent and all that sort of thing. Um, I, I really thought I, I have to reach out to someone or I'm going to die. Uh, my first thought, I went to my computer and I typed in um, suicide. Uh, what did I type in? Suicide. Uh, I'm just trying to remember. Suicide hotline in Canada. That's what I typed in. And I got one eight three three four five six four five six six. This is the second time since I've had this illness. Uh, this was a few years ago. The same thing happened to me, but I didn't speak out. This time I feel that I have to. I was put on hold, and I was listening to music, and I was told that I was going to, you know, didn't tell me where I was in the queue, didn't say that you're the next one coming up, but I was on hold, and I'm, I'm suicidal, and I'm serious. I was, it was dark. It was really dark, Patty. I was really dark. I thought, no, no, I'm not, I can't do this. I have to do something else. And I remembered uh, the 811 number. And I know there's been a lot of changes with the 811 number in Newfoundland and Labrador, but I remember the 811 number. Um, 
back a number of years ago when we didn't have 811 for crisis. We had 811, or, or no, there was the mental health crisis line. That's what it was called. I'm sorry. And, and there was occasions where I was suicidal, and I had to call then there. And I had horrific experiences. One guy, actually, I was talking really gibberish. Um, he accused me of being drunk, and he didn't know what PNES was, and he hung up on me. So, yeah. Anyway, that's bad. The suicide uh, Prevention, prevention uh, hotline for Canada, that's bad. This time, I want to give a shout-out. I have to talk about things that are good when they are good. I placed a call to 811. I received the best services that I could possibly receive. Um, I'm I, glad to hear that. I have another number for you that you might want to take as well. You do? Yeah. Okay, sure. So this is a great uh, uh, organization called Wellness Together. If you're in distress, there's an opportunity to speak with a counselor 24-7. It's 1-866-1-866-585-585-0445. Is this Newfoundland Labrador? That's a Canada-wide organization for mental health and substance use support. Uh, People who I've put onto them have had great... Uh, great interactions and they're really quite pleased with the help ah. and the counseling they get from Wellness Together so I would add that to your quiver. Oh, absolutely thank you for that I had no idea <laughs> no idea since I since I've been forced to not work as a counselor I'm really not in the loop of all the services so that I really appreciate that and I hope there's never an opportunity for me to call but you know there might be a listener that would call if they do call the 811 number I want to say that uh, I I got excellent service from a registered nurse uh, I don't think she understood the PNES part of it very well and I, I was really not coherent very much at that time but she did manage to uh, get a dispatcher on the line who needed a little bit more training and I was able to tell her listen you're not helping me here you're making me worse but yeah she she came around and she got an ambulance dispatched to my house so you know I I just want to there's many more things I could talk to you about Patty I have a lifetime of absolutely wonderful experiences from, from professionals and I have a lifetime of horrific experiences from professionals uh, I am currently, I have a Facebook page. It's uh, at Debbie A. Sampson, S-A-M-S-O-N, uh, on Facebook. And I am, I guess the word is chronicling my relapse. And uh, I think it's helpful to a lot of people. I have over 4,000 followers worldwide. And I want to help people understand this illness, this illness called complex PTSD, and this very little-known illness called PNES, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, and I know that it's making a difference. I have people are not alone, and and I just want to help. And that's the reason I'm calling you today. And I may call you some uh, more times because uh, people just need to know they're not alone, and people need to understand these illnesses. The medical profession needs to understand these illnesses. You know, I I know you don't have a lot of time, and I don't want to take up the next person's time, but you know, I've had some pretty horrific. Experiences experiences where I've been, you know, one time hospitalized at the psychiatric unit in uh, Western Memorial Regional Hospital with a psychiatrist who just kept asking me, what's your trauma, what's your trauma, and he's getting really mad with me, and I was having a seizure. I'm a counselor, thank God, and I 
was able to blurt out to him somehow, I can't talk to you about my trauma. You're re-traumatizing me. And he was really angry, and he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I just want to get out of here. It's just things like that. They don't understand PNES. We need we need uh, professionals educated on this stuff. I never should have to call a helpline and have someone say, you're drunk and hang up on me because I'm stuttering, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What I would also add, Debbie, is if you're finding yourself in that level of distress, as opposed to 811, it's entirely appropriate to call 911. Yeah, you know, I could have. I could have. Yeah, I could have. I just yeah. wanted to add that to the conversation. That's I hope right. you're doing well. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a relapse, so I, I'm not doing well. But, you know, compared to last Sunday and a couple of days ago when I had a really dark day and was suicidal at that time, I had people here with me, thank goodness. But, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping, I'm hopeful. I had, by the way, this um, relapse came about as a result of a repressed memory of me being strangled. I have dealt with a lot of trauma in my life, and I've dealt with sexual abuse, and I've, I've processed it, I've dealt with I've done all the things I needed to do. I guess the time was ripe, I suppose, and I was ready, unfortunately, I suppose. But this repressed um, memory of being strangled uh, came up, and that's what's going on here now. And it's going to take me a while to uh, integrate it, process it, and get well again. But I have hope, Patty, that I will. Well, I hope that you continue to have that level of hope. Uh, Debbie, hopefully those numbers that I gave you will also be helpful. I Absolutely. appreciate your time, and you're always welcome on the program. Absolutely. Thank you, Patty. You have a wonderful day. You too, Debbie. God bless. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Just a couple of quick ones, and, and again, it's not up to me what we talk about. It's entirely up to you. I was asked a couple of times via email why certain subjects weren't broached. One thing was about why didn't we talk about the fact that they found a data recorder. Apparently, they found some sort of data recorder at the rec site of the Titan Submersible. When in fact, I said exactly that here today. The news story that I read about it versus the one that we saw on the BBC says they have indeed recovered something that they're calling a data recorder. They stopped short of calling it a black box. I don't know what it is recorded. I assume audio right up to the time of the catastrophe of whatever that was. So that's out there. And it's an important part of the conversation. Hopefully it will help us glean more information. Also, interestingly, I'll say, is why not talk about foreign interference in elections, which, man, oh man, I've talked about it a lot. And curiously, again, not a whole lot of uptake from listeners. So the most recent update on that front, we know the most recent report from then Special Rapporteur David Johnson has been uh, delivered to the government. The special addendum is not has not been seen by people who don't have security clearance at that level. It, the public will not get a look at this report. So again, we've talked about this a lot from day one. I think the only way forward for Canadians to have supreme confidence in whatever's gone on, not that we're going to get to see classified documents and any sort of inquiry, but a public inquiry might be the right play, politically speaking. Don't know what we'll actually understand from it. And now what's the next steps? So the next steps, so says the Prime Minister, requires full buy-in from the opposition party so we don't go down that muddy road of what was uh, David Johnson's appointment as the Special Rapporteur. Will there be any appetite? Uh, well, certainly the Bloc Québécois and Monsieur Blanchet has said, you know, unless it's a public inquiry, he doesn't want to talk about it. Mr. Poliev has said the exact same thing. 
Singh. Uh, there may indeed be some wiggle room there with the Singh and the NDP, but they've been very firm. They've also said public inquiry is all they're interested in talking about. So even with all that said, is there any sort of reasonable opportunity for any type of consensus amongst the federal parties to figure out what we do next? Because if it's not a public inquiry, they seemingly have no interest in it no matter what that looks like. Offering of uh, security briefings, whether it be for Mr. Poliev, Singh, Blanchette, and others, which they've said, no, they don't want them. So if we pretend all of a sudden we're going to be able to come to this consensus, which is generally speaking like herding cats, uh, not so sure. But that's a conversation we're happy to have, and I've brought it up countless times. If it's of interest to you, we can talk about it tomorrow because we will indeed pick up this conversation tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye bye